mind. Into public session, advise members that they are welcome to use Wi-Fi connected public mobile devices as long as they are in airplane mode and they are not muted. Chairman uh, Lisa Phillip and possibly Jim Allister will be joining the meeting by Starleaf. I'll ask the assembly broadcast to keep all members in the spotlight for the first agenda items. Uh, if we're content to proceed through the agenda, are we happy? Content. Uh, apologies. I've received an apology from Matthew, and also I've been, been informed that Jim Allister will join the meeting later. Uh, members who are aware of any other apologies? You expecting Gemma to come up, isn't she? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm expecting to join by Starleaf, I think. Okay. And Peter, no, we've had no notice from any member who has delegated authority to another member to vote under the temporary standing order. Nope, none. Okay. Uh, declaration of interest. I have one declaration of interest. I think it's in uh, agenda item 10.8. It's in ARC 21, and it's my standing objection to ARC 21 and its attempt to build a high town incinerator. Members, do we have any other uh, declaration as of interest? Uh, moving on to item number three, the chairperson's business. Uh, budget debate. Uh, members are reminded that the supplementary resolutions debate, one scheduled for uh, Monday and the second stage of the budget bill is scheduled for Tuesday. As is usual, I will speak on both these debates on behalf of the committee and reflect the committee's scrutiny of these important matters. Uh, item number two, Commissioner for Standards. Uh, page three of the table item includes a letter from the Northern Ireland Assembly Commissioner for Standards seeking information which was put before the committee that's first meeting in the mandate, the 22nd of January 2020. Peter, do you just want to sort of say what that is, about the standing orders? And the... uh, basically, what they're looking for is that in the very first meeting of the uh, mandate, members would have um, received a briefing from the clerk and some um, uh, very standard material uh, around the things that the Commissioner is asking for, which is around the preparation and uh, um, uh, preparation for meetings and uh, the questioning of witnesses, etc., and around protocols and uh, declaration of interests, etc. So it's pretty standard stuff. I think she's just looking for this for background. Okay, we agreed. Uh, next item: Twitter videos, um, committee meeting update. As in practice of another of the committees and with the Finance Committee's agreement, I intend to produce and publish a short, and I mean short, Twitty video after each committee meeting. The video will be short and factual and will simply cover what the committee did at the preceding meeting. Do we have any comments? It will be the hottest ticket in time, Mr Chairman. Uh, I'll at least get up to three. My mum will watch it. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> funny Agreed. <laughs> Cheers. Uh, draft minutes of proceedings. Uh, draft minutes of proceedings are at page seven. Are members content with the draft minutes of the 17th of February and are accurate record of proceedings? All these to say, agreed. Agreed. Okay. Matters are rising. Uh, Pat, at last, at last week's meeting, Pat uh, had asked us that, in light of recent speculation relating to strategic reviews of the future operations of Ulster Bank and the Bank of Ireland and Northern Ireland, the committee should invite representatives of the banking sector to provide a briefing to the committee. Um, Peter, sorry, the clerk has advised that the Committee for Economy is currently working on meeting informally with the local banks and UK Finance, their representative body. This has been a long time in planning. Negotiating is likely to happen after Easter. It is understood that, owing to the commercial sensitivity of these matters, the banks are very unlikely to agree to brief the Finance Committee in public session, and the Economy Committee intends to ask questions about operational issues such as the future of the bricks and mortar branches and the impact that COVID has on parts of banking plans around this. It is also understood that the Ulster Bank in Northern Ireland is entirely separate from the Ulster Bank in the Republic of Ireland, 
And if the latter is sold, when the latter is sold, it's understood, further understood that NatWest Ulster Bank, Noel Naren's owner, has assured the committee for the economy that Ulster Bank NI is here to stay. But I understand the caveat with the back office jobs of approximately 600 back office jobs for Ulster Bank that had previously been done for covering for the whole of Ireland issue as well. Um, banking service and their regulation were not reserved as a department for the economy matter. There were also consumer issues which fall to the department for the economy, as do any insolvency related business regulation matters in credit unions and building societies. Pat, do you have any comments on any other members? Oh, sir? Yes. Can, 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 that not go, can there not be at least a joint meeting of both ourselves and the economy? And my questions would not necessarily sit around the Ulster Bank or the Bank of Ireland. It would be the, the, the impact of banking and where we are as we go forward and we come out of this pandemic. I mean, there may well be loan books so long, we've already seen that in the past, how that uh, impacts on businesses. Uh, one, of the, one of the big statistics that have come out, 3.6 I've seen, was the employment, unemployment rate, which was, is for Northern Ireland coming out of this, but we still haven't seen the run out or the work out of the, of the furlough scheme. Like that. But a, a higher statistic was the 23.6% of self-employed who now find themselves without working and signing, you know, leaving, leaving whatever their chosen professions were. Now, they are the risk takers. They're probably the ones that will go in on the small business that do grow to medium-sized enterprises. So this will have a long-term effect. I mean, whether or not I personally uh, believe that UK finance will work as a buffer zone between all of the banks. But I would be asking the economy minister or ourselves to speak directly to the Ulster Bank or to Bank of Ireland, and not necessarily UK Finance, who I believe will try to work as a buffer zone between those individual banks. Okay, thanks, Jim. Um, I had a, an anonymous email from a member of staff within the Ulster Bank in Northern Ireland in the back office, and he said yes, whilst Ulster Bank is here to stay in Northern Ireland. That doesn't mean for any with any certainty that the 600 jobs that are dependent on, the, on carrying out those back office functions are safe. Uh, there's, no, there's no guarantees been given to those 600 people. Now, <coughs> these are 600 well-paid, secure, full-time jobs, and the loss of that to the Northern Ireland economy would be very significant. And unfortunately, I don't think we've heard the last of further amalgamations and reductions of staff in this sector. Now, how we've got around this in the past is to have a joint approach between two committees, because there's very clearly an overlap here between ourselves and Derry. Derry, I think, are doing, or the Derry Committee are doing a much wider overall review of banking. I think we need to be reacting to, to the very difficult situation we're facing today. And I know in the past what we've done is that the committees have worked together on this subject when there's been overlap. Now, I, I don't know what the reaction of the Deadly Committee would be, but uh, could we not suggest to them that we cooperate together on this issue? Mm. Any other comments? Well, yeah, I, whilst I recognise the remits and where they both fall, there has always been this issue about banking and engagement with banking, and there has been in the past, as Jim has said, uh, joint meetings. I can remember being on the Economy Committee and having joint meetings with the Finance Committee. I've also spent time in the Finance Committee in the past too, where We've engaged on banking, so it has been done before. Uh, so I would, you know, I think we need to do something. If nothing, it puts pressure on the 
banking organisations, but it also shows, if you like, a joined-up approach here in the Assembly. Uh, and you know, it might just—I—I I think I read somewhere that the Economy Committee was doing an, or trying to get the banks in on an informal basis. Mm-hmm. If that is that the case, then it might not be too difficult then to invite members of this committee onto that in a formal way. Uh, I don't know where sta- standard the. Uh, Statutory committee rules and engagements fall in regards to that place, but if it's just an informal meeting, then I don't see there being a problem. And you know, if they're doing it in a building, a room such as this, or one of the rooms upstairs, or even through Zoom, I don't see it being a problem at all. Um, so I do, I do think there is an interest. Whilst we might not have the sole responsibility, or the most of the responsibility, I think there's a definite interest in the finance committee to the banking aspects. Uh, and it will overlap with so many other issues, not including, uh, not notwithstanding the, the protocol and Brexit and everything else that goes with it. So I think I would agree with the gentleman that we, we should be trying to do something together. Melissa? Yes, uh, and I would agree to you, Chair, and I know that this issue has been raised with me as well in relation to the Ulster Bank in particular. And uh, the 600 jobs that uh, apparently that for they do provide a backup to the Ulster Bank and that in the Republic, and uh, and the event of those jobs going, uh, just the uh, impact that that has then. And as you mentioned there about bricks and mortar, you know, and we see too often just particularly in rural areas and the likes of it as well too, uh, that in terms of a bank and presence is disappearing entirely. You know, and would like to have a bit of clarity. Uh, on the part of uh, the Ulster Bank, and I can understand too that if they're currently in a situation whereby they're uh, negotiating their way out, that um, uh, from uh, the Republic and that that uh, the impact that that would have maybe on uh, employees, and that they won't want to sort of sit down to disclose everything, uh, we'll say publicly. But uh, I do think that this particular committee as well too should take a grasp of the situation and 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 engage with uh, the Ulster Bank in particular. Um, sir, I'm going to put a suggestion out there that we write that I write to the chair of the economy committee, asking if she, if she would have any objections. I don't think Quiva would, to be quite honest. If we could sit in on the informal session and to be able to uh, ask questions uh, as as they come up, would we be content to do that? Great. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. I'm sure. One one point on it. Uh, can you clarify from them? Are they inviting? Individual, the individual banks, or are they going to invite UK Finance? I think it's Those individual banks. Sitting in front of us. Did I read that? It said local banks and UK Finance. Yeah, local banks will will they be then? Will they be met by UK Finance? The point I'm trying to make is, do UK Finance will come out and represent all of the banks? I'll clarify, Chairperson. Thanks. Okay, thanks. And if if you could circulate that out of committee so that sort of the Thank members you. are informed. Okay. If we move on to item number six of the agenda, uh, Assembly research budget matters, um, sort of Rachel, Colin, and Chris. Or sorry, Dr. Rachel, um, Colin, and Chris. Can we come up on Starleaf, please? There we go. There's Colin. Hi, Colin. Can you hear me, Colin? Yes, I can. Uh, Rachel? I'm trying to turn this off. Hello. Hey. Hi, Rachel. Hi. And Chris? Yes. 
Well done. Thank you very much indeed. Um, team, the Assembly research briefings are designed to inform the Committee's scrutiny of the spring supplementary estimates and the proposed Budget Bill Northern Ireland 2021. The following papers are relevant to this agenda item. The Assembly research paper on page 18, the Department of Finance correspondence on quarter 3, page 43, the Assembly research paper analysis of departmental bids relating to monitoring rounds, page 69, and the Assembly research paper on the spring supplementary estimates at page 5 of the tabled items. Uh, Chris, could I ask you to speak to quarter 3 outturn, uh, followed by Rachel on the pandemic bids, and then the SSEs, please? Thanks very much indeed. Certainly. Uh, thank you, Chair. Uh, so, um, firstly, uh, the OECD publishes 10 budgeting principles. So we've discussed these in the commentary paper that's in the pack. Um, but basically, these are aimed to encourage good practice in the design, implementation, and, um, and improving budgeting in government. So we're aware that's something that the department and the committee are keen to build on. Um, and that's what this dashboard and the, the commentary that goes with it hopefully feeds into. So um, the aim of this uh, dashboard is really to present the budgetary information in a in a accessible and interactive way. So as I said, there's more information on that in the paper in section one. Um, but in the interest of time, I'll talk through the dashboard here um, and some of the key points that are in the commentary. So to do that, uh, I'll share my screen here. If you bear with me. Okay, so you can see this. So this is on the assembly website. Um, and what we have here are five different pages <clears throat> that show this information. So we've got uh, monthly capital, monthly resource, annual capital, and annual resource, and then a forecasting accuracy summary page at the end. So, starting with this page here, we've got our monthly capital, um, and this slide shows uh, forecast expenditure and actual expenditure um, for the departments by each month of this financial year. Um, so, there's some, a profile here at the top, and then in the bottom, some key figures. So, we can see some things like the total capital budget for the year of 1.7 billion. Um, and of that, the biggest allocations are infrastructure, health, and communities. So the three of those account for about seventy percent of this one point seven billion. What we can see here is that eight hundred and thirty-one point five million of that, as of December, has been spent, which represents just slightly less than half of the capital budget. So that means that with a quarter of the year remaining, there's more than half the budget still. Um, on spend. So obviously that means you risk or potential risk of a surge in year-end spending, um, as you can see here in March. And obviously that's the subject of a lot of uh, discussion in the Assembly and elsewhere. So um, you know, there's some evidence then that could lead to the budget not being allocated in the most efficient way or not representing the best value for money. Um, but as I'll show you in a couple of moments, um, that trend in itself is not unusual um, in the context of previous financial years. If we look next at the same thing for resource, but you can still see this. Um, the second page, we've got a more even uh, profile of spend for resource um, across months. 
um, on a budget here of 14.5 billion. Um, the Department of Health and Education account for the vast majority of this, so health on its own, if I select it here, accounts for 7 billion of that 14. Um, education accounts for around 2.5, and, and that's about 17. So as of December, we can see around 70% of this resource budget has been spent. And that's pretty, that's pretty uniform across the departments. They've all spent around that much uh, of their budget as of the end of December. There's one exception, and that's DERA. So we can see here, they've actually spent, this department spent around 86% of its budget. And the majority of that can be accounted for here. This payment is a single farm payment, so that's in October. So that alone accounts for around 55% of DERA's budget just in that month of October. The rest are fairly, fairly standard at about 70%. So if I move on to an annual profile then of capital spend, so we've looked at the monthly profile for capital and resource. This is the annual profile for capital. And I mentioned that with a few months of the year remaining, um, there's still half the budget to be spent. Um, and that that wasn't an unusual trend in the context of previous years. And we can see that here. So um, in previous financial years, we've got to the end of December um, and probably spent about half of the budget. Um, so it's not, it's not that unusual. Um, as I said, that's the subject of a lot of discussion. You know, the risk of if it's not spent, it could be surrendered. And if it is, it may not be done in the most efficient way. Um, although it is, it is worth mentioning that you know it's been a challenging year for a variety of well-known reasons, um, and you can see that reflected in some of this spend data. So if we look at November, for an example, we can see that the spend in November for capital is uh, 195 million. Last year, that was around 88, so it's more than doubled just in that one month um, this year. So it's a sign that um, you know it's a challenging in terms of budget management. If we move on then to the annual profile uh, for resource, we can see first thing that comes out at us is that the monthly spend has been higher in all months this year compared to previous years, although. The, the profile is fairly similar. So again, by, by the end of December this year, we spent about 70% of this budget. It's been about 70 to 73% in the previous years. Um, and again, in the context of COVID, um, what an unusual year it's been. Um, we can see here at the bottom that we've, we've already spent 10.3 billion, which is pretty close to what we spent in the entirety of 2017. And then finally, we have a forecasting accuracy page. And this basically shows the percentage variation between what departments forecast they would spend in a month and what they actually spent in a month. So we do a monthly view. Um, and the most recent we can do that for is November. But we've also got a, a cumulative view for June to November. So that, that's really there just to smooth out any one-off strange variances and give a more rounded picture of the year so far. So if we look at this one here, so this is capital uh, forecasting performance for November. And the one that jumps out at us here immediately is DFE. Um, so it's a big variation. And the reason for that 
is uh, there was a 17 million uh, pound receipt from the Presbyterian Mutual Society and received on the last day of November. Um, that was expected in December. So the reason that this, the reason for this variation in forecast and outturn is basically the unexpected uh, receipt of that, that money um, in November rather than December. If we look here, we can see DFE and Department of Finance both have quite sizable variations to the, the Department of Finance one. Uh, that relates to additional COVID funding for uh, grants to business of around 35 million. So that was all profiled in full uh, for November rather than being forecast out for the remaining months, which is why it's it's it's, uh, it's put this spike here, sort of big, the big variation between uh, forecasts and outturn. So again, it's, again, it's worth noting that although this variation and some of the others do look significant, it's in the context of of new code. The expenditure that the departments are managing in terms of scale and type is obviously uh, very different from previous years. So <clears throat> that briefly covers the five pages. So we've looked at our forecast performance here and then our annual profile for resource, our annual profile for capital, and then our monthly profiles for resource and capital. So. Um, there is a user guide for this in the commentary as far as I know. So um, if, if any of you do want to look at this in more detail, that should help you navigate that. Um, and indeed, if there's any questions on that, then we can we can answer those at any time. So thank you. Okay, Tim, any questions? Lisa? Lisa? No, no, I don't have any questions. All right, sorry. No. <laughs> so, so we're just, we're just looking at the hand. Jim? Um, I'm intrigued by your comment about the Presbyterian Mutual Society, yeah. uh, because we're actually looking at that at the moment. Uh, 17 million, do we know if that was a windfall or was that anticipated? Has that been built into the estimates? You were saying it arrived on the last uh, day in November. That they assumed it was going to come in December, but had they did they know there were seventeen million coming? Uh, yeah, so it was it was unexpected in the sense that it was received in November, but it was as far as as far as I'm aware, it was it was anticipated um, in December. So yeah, it wasn't unexpected in that sense. So it should, it should have been built in. Yeah, it should have been expected for December. And the reason it showed up with variation is just that it wasn't built into November's numbers. So we can't grab it as a windfall and use it for a pet project, unfortunately. Are we expecting other uh, payments? Because Presbyterian Mutual Society is something I haven't heard mentioned for about maybe 10 years. It's back up twice now. Yeah, and then suddenly um, it has emerged. Now, there was a £200 million uh, loan taken by the executive to pay off the, the, the creditors for the Presbyterian Mutual Society. Does that 17 million, is that a profit on top of that or is that going back to pay that loan? Uh, short answer is I'm not sure about that personally, Colin. Would you? No, I, 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 don't, I don't know whether you would categorise it as a profit. What it is is a capital receipt. Um, so it's a, whether it's the, the PMS has disposed of an asset, which then the. Um, the executive has then received the money from which it can use to then pay off the, the principal on the loan 
we don't know the detail, unfortunately, but it might be something that we can we can seek more information on and, and get back to the committee. That would be useful because the committee out of nowhere got a letter from a distressed gentleman saying he was still owed money from it, which shocked me because certainly in South Down everybody's got their money back long ago. The other issue that concerns me about the, sh- the chart you've shown me, and there's a consistent trend here of a massive surge in capital spending in the last month of the year, in March. Now, that's extremely bad management that that's happening. And okay, you could blame coronavirus this year, but in previous years, there's a, st- a very distinct trend in every financial year of departments suddenly waking up and thinking, hold on, we've got uh, tens of millions of capital spend here, and we need to get it spent quickly. Now, that, A, that shouldn't have surprised them, and secondly, I am worried about rushed projects at the very end. Is there any explanation being given in, in the papers as to why that's such a consistent trend? Um, Jim, if I, I, uh, sorry, through the chair, I can, I can answer that from memory when the department talked about this in previous years, going back a long time. One of the reasons uh, that we see this with capital is it, it's a consequence of having had one-year budgets for a while. So what, what, what you get um, when you get a one-year allocation of capital, you have to go through the approvals process to get the, the capital um, business case approved. And that takes a period of time, obviously, and it can take maybe six months. And then actually the expenditure has to be incurred as well. So there is something around the length of time it takes to get capital money actually spent. But the other issue is that I suspect that if we look back over the, the multi-year period, which we don't have the data for, you might find actually that it's not really all that different because yeah. part of the part of the um, the issue with the multi-year budget, which we will come up against uh, in future if we ever get multi-year uh, budgeting as as is intended, was that halfway through that there had to be a big reallocation exercise which moved all the capital around again because it wasn't the priorities had changed in a set in effect. So um, we don't have the data for that, and I think it would be it would be a, a very onerous task to collect it because, apart from anything else, the, the structure of departments is completely different, and we have far fewer now. Um, but th- there is something around that, and um, but it's but it's something again that perhaps could be raised with the the um, officials about the about the profile. But but. I mean, I've been on this committee for quite a long time, and we were told that each department has got what's called shovel-ready projects, which they've got all the planning consents, the estimates, the quantities sorted out, and they have them hanging on a peg, as it were, ready to, mm. to start, should the capital become available. Now, the classic one from my own patch is the Valentine's Bypass, which has been sitting now literally shovel-ready, everything ready to go as soon as the money becomes available. It seems that that really isn't working, that, that suddenly they seem to be starting projects at the start of the year, getting their uh, procedures sorted out, their business cases, etc. And then there's this mad dash to get the capital out the door in March. So that graph could not be starker. And if anything, it's getting worse rather than better. Yeah, well, it's certainly, it's certainly a feature of the charts. Um, as to... I mean, one of the issues with shovel-ready projects is perhaps that the, the, there's an issue there about the difference between in-year allocations of capital and the ones that are approved at the start of the year. 
so the shovel ready ones are maybe ones that are you know we would hear about maybe for January monitoring when you know classically it's Department for Infrastructure gets um, structural road maintenance money or whatever. Um, so some of this can be explained by monitoring round money which tends not to come at the start of the year. Is that explains that charge? Um, well, no, because it's an annual profile. Um, it's not. It would be adjusted. It's adjusted each time. Um, at least the monthly profiles are adjusted. Uh, so overall, it should it should balance. Um, so I think the, the the question is really to what extent is this planned? So is it that the the contract is written in such a way that the that the money is paid over at the end of the financial year, mm -hmm. in which case it's not necessarily bad management, or is it um, is it happening because there is a rush to spend at the end of the year? Um, and from from these data, we can't tell. But what we can do is point to it as a question that perhaps the committee can can raise with the department in a future session. Thank you. Okay, Philip. Philip. Thank you. Uh, just following on from Jim's point, I was going to ask that same question, but it says in your paper that you know, there is evidence that expenditure occurring in a rush at the end of the year may not deliver the same level of value for money uh, that taxpayers can expect. I mean, obviously, uh, uh, an obvious reason is a project may be particularly rushed, but it, that point is made a couple of times in the paper and it, it doesn't go into detail. I mean, is there any other reasons why uh projects or capital being spent within the last couple of months of the financial year are inefficient that i'm missing um well it, it might be it might not necessarily be it might not be inefficiency but it might be that um public procurement takes a long time and that's another issue, actually thinking about it, there's another issue with capital. If you've only got a one-year allocation, it takes a while to actually get the contracts in place um, and go to market. But um, the, the issue around the end-year rush is that it might be that if there's money, like now, for example, in this current year, the uh, Department of Health has been allocated, wasn't it, 175 million to spend on PPE. Now, that may well be a good use of the money um, but it may be that had 175 million been available at the start of the year, you might have got a better price for your PPE. But because you're compressing it into that last that last period of the year, your suppliers will also know that you've that you've got a, a, a hard sort of budget constraint at the end of the year. By which time, you know you need to get it uh, spent, and also. They may not have had sufficient time to build up a stock, which uh, to supply the volume that you need. So you might might end up having to pay a higher price per unit than you would have done had it been done at the start of the year or earlier on in the year. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, because there, there there are I mean there are obviously understandable reasons in any year, but particularly this year, where uh, capital would be being spent. Uh, uh, towards the end of the year, I mean, for example, there were there were a lot of 
construction workers and construction companies, for example, weren't working for a good part of the, of the year. So, I mean, I just I thought maybe there was something uh, over and above the obvious that I was missing, and you've explained uh, one reason why. So, I thank you for that. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Oh, just, um, Colin, Chris, just comparing this with previous profiles, even despite sort of COVID and the increase of money coming into COVID and sort of the extra $3.3 billion, the profiles look remarkably the same every year that we've gone by. Would, I, would that be a correct assessment? It's some, nothing's really changed, and what is driving is not the quantum it's just the nature of the annual budgeting process or the way the civil service decides to apportion money? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the profile month to month and then comparing year to year, it's, you know, if you look at the, the actual figures, you can't see them all on the screen here, but if you look at the figures, like, it's within a percentage or two um, yeah. each month and what's been spent by the department. So it's, it's always been very, it seems to have been very similar, at least three years that we've got the data for there. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the things is if, if we do ever get to the point of going to multi-year budgets, there's going to have to be a substantial rethink within the sort of the departments on how they profile and how they look at sort of um, budgeting as well, because uh, looking historically, every single year they seem to be hitting the same pinch points at the same time. When somebody spent a lot of time being stuck in sort of governmental process, I understand, you know, we don't know what we're going to do until we see how much money we have, then we go through the process, then we do it, and then we, then we bring it to the point. You know, it just seems to continuously follow that pattern. It doesn't matter how much or how little, little was in it. So obviously if we're looking at reform about how we do the multi-year budgeting process, that's probably going to have to be one of the first areas that's going to be looked at. I would agree with that, Karen, that there's clearly an issue about NGF flexibility. Um, we've heard an awful lot about that from the finance ministers of all the devolved administrations this year. Um, the, the issue will be whether, when the executive has a multi-annual budget, whether or not it has the, whether it has the ability to give flexibility to departments within that itself, or whether it's only within the treasury rules, um, which will still have an annual, an annual profile. Um, even though it's a, a four-year budget or three-year budget, it will still be uh, an amount per year, as it were. So it will give you a direction of travel, but it won't necessarily give you more freedom at the end of the year, I suspect. Okay, thanks. Thanks very much, today. Rachel, you're up next. Thank you, Chair. Um, I'm going to go through two pieces of work completed by RIAS. The first one concerns departmental bids made during the pandemic, and the second one concerns the Spriggs Supplementary Estimates document. I see you have another packed agenda this week, so I'm going to try and be as brief as possible and highlight some of the key findings in each of them. Uh, firstly, the paper entitled Analysis of Departmental Bids, I believe is in your packs on pages 69 through 90. This paper was commissioned by the committee to analyse departmental bids for funding made during the pandemic. The committee requested bid data from the departments in October of 2020 with a return date of November 6, 2020. Therefore, this paper covers all bids made during the pandemic up to and including the October monitoring round. So firstly, it's important to note that during a typical financial year, the budget sets expenditure plans for the departments for the forward-looking financial year, and in-year monitoring is then used to provide a formal system for reviewing these spending plans and priorities during the year. And this is done in light of more up-to-date information becoming available. 
A key element of in-year monitoring is that departments must give up any reduced requirements, but they also can propose reallocations and reclassifications within their own budgets and may also submit bids for additional funding. So essentially, the in-year monitoring process is designed to both aid good financial management and to ensure that resources are directed towards the executive's highest priority areas. It's typical to have three monitoring rounds per year in June, October and January. However, this year has not been typical. Firstly, the executive budget 2020-21 was set at the very start of the pandemic, so only limited funding for the COVID response was included within the budget. Um, so I think that was 120 million of resource and 1.3 million of capital was included within the original budget position. Mm -hmm. As a result, and due to the need for the response to be both rapid and flexible, the COVID-19 response has been developed mainly outside of the budget process. The executive has received COVID-19 funding through the Barnett formula from, from Treasury. COVID-19 funding allocations have been and are being announced on an ongoing basis. So in addition to the monitoring rounds during the year, departments have been submitting bids for COVID-19 funding on an ongoing basis. As I mentioned, this paper looks at bids made during the pandemic up to and including October, and this includes COVID bids and non-COVID bids. The committee requested bid data from the departments in writing with an attached template, and the template asked for information, including the purpose of the bid, the value of the bid, and the outcome of each bid, whether it was successful, partially successful, or unsuccessful. The information received by the committee has been collated and is presented in, the append in Appendix 1 of the paper. So Section 3.1 of the paper, which starts on page 4, presents some prelim prelim preliminary analysis of the data. Uh, the depart departmental returns contain information relating to 263 bids with a combined total value of 2.8 billion. To put this in perspective, uh, we last conducted a similar analysis in 2014 and during the 2013-14 financial year, one third of a billion uh, pounds of funding was allocated through the in-year monitoring process. So this is sort of, uh, quite a substantial allocation this year. Figure one on page four of the paper shows how the bids are broken down by department. So the Department for Economy submitted 88 bids, which was the highest number of bids submitted by any of the departments. However, the combined value of their bids amounted to 339 million, meaning that their average bid value was approximately 3.5 million. In comparison, the Department of Health had the highest average bid value of almost 80 million. This stark contrast is due to the fact that they submitted only 13 bids with a combined value of more than 1 billion. Figure two on page five of the paper shows that the vast majority of departmental bids concern COVID-19 funding. COVID bids account for 219 of the 263 bids, and this equates to funding requests totaling 2.4 billion. Figure two also shows that this compares by department for example, the Department for Communities, uh, DERA, and the Department of Finance submitted an aggregate of 34 COVID bids, but no non-COVID bids. The Department for Economy, which submitted the highest number of bids overall, also submitted the highest number of COVID bids. So in other words, 81 of their 88 bids concern COVID-19 funding. Mm -hmm. Figure three on page five shows the total value of COVID and non-COVID bids by departments. And it's clear that the vast majority of COVID bids were from the Department of Health, who requested 934.5 million of COVID funding. It is worth noting that despite this figure being significantly higher than the other departmental requests for funding, the Department of 
Health only submitted three COVID bids. Um, each of the COVID bids seems to be an aggregated form. So, for example, one of them for 866 million um, is just entitled Department of Health COVID Response. And the other two bids, uh, which are around 30 million each, are entitled Department of Health COVID Capital. In its request, the committee had also asked for the outcome of each bid, whether it was successful, partially successful or unsuccessful. Of the 263 bids submitted by departments, 141 were unsuccessful and 56 were partially successful. In other words, of the 2.8 billion of funding requested, an allocation of 1.9 billion was made. Again, success varied by department. Figure five shows the percentage of successful, partially successful and unsuccessful bids made by departments. Well, figure four shows the percentage of funding allocated through the bidding process as a proportion of the total values of bids submitted. They both show that the Department of Finance 100% success rate, however, the Department of Finance submitted only one bid. In monetary terms, the Department of Health, the Executive Office and the Department for Communities all experienced high levels of success in terms of the amount of funding allocated as a result of the bids submitted, with each receiving allocations of more than 89% 89 of the funding that they requested. Based on the information provided in the responses, it was possible to conduct some analysis at the departmental level. This departmental analysis um, uncovered two interesting findings. Firstly, a number of larger bids submitted early on in the pandemic anticipated larger costs than were eventually needed. So an example of this is DERA, uh, they submitted a bid for 107.5 million for support for agri-food sector, and this resulted in a partial allocation of 25 million of COVID-19 funding. However, this was later found to be sufficient to cover the pressure. So in hindsight, if this bid had originally been successful, this would have resulted in a large reduced requirement. Secondly, the Department for Economy, the Department for Education and the Department for Infrastructure submitted the highest number of bids at 88, 56 and 40 respectively. However, much of this variability is due to many bids being submitted multiple times across monitoring rounds. So in instances like these, it's unclear if departments are encouraged to submit bids multiple times or to submit bids from pressures as soon as they are aware of them, even if the funding is not immediately needed. No information was provided regarding the reasons why bids are not approved each time. Also, it's unclear from the data if there are multiple instances of larger COVID-19 response bids resulting in underspends. So obviously this paper only covers departmental bids up to and including the October monitoring round. However, the committee may be interested in obtaining additional information to further understand how things have transpired over the course of the full financial year. Rachel. So I'm not to the second piece of work, which is yep. a briefing note concerning the 2020-21 spring supplementary estimates. Yeah. And this briefing note has been tabled this week. The aim of this note is to support the committee in its consideration of the spring supplementary estimates draft document, which was provided to the committee and to raise on February 12th. I note that in the committee meeting last week, the committee heard evidence from the Department of Finance officials and subsequently voted to grant accelerated passage to the budget bill associated with the spring supplementary estimates which in effect removes the need for a committee stage of the bill. I also note that on today's agenda, the Department of Finance officials are due to provide oral evidence um, in, the in the supplementary estimates. 
So as the committee is aware, there's a very short time frame between um, when the committee can consider and analyze the spring supplementary estimates. And also the draft spring supplementary estimates documents runs to many hundreds of pages and includes among other things, many routine or technical changes. This briefing note aims to support the committee in its consideration of the spring supplementary estimates by providing, first of all, context surrounding the estimates process to aid understanding and then a summary of the key points. Uh, section one of the paper, which begins on page two, provides some context to the process. It's important to note that the executive budget, which is set by the executive, do does not itself confer authority for departments to spend or commit resources. This requires assembly agreement through the estimates process and the budget acts. The main estimates set out detailed spending plans of the departments for the financial year, and then the spring supplementary estimates seek authority or additional resources and cash as necessary. So in essence, the 2020-21 spring supplementary estimates set out the changes to both the resources the executive is proposing to use in 2020-21 and the cash it is seeking authority to draw from the Northern Ireland Consolidated Fund. It's also important to note that the Department of Finance used resource accounting when formulating the estimates. And so the figures presented in the estimates differ from those presented in the budget. The estimates documents do not contain or do contain tables which reconcile these figures. Also, when analysing budgets, we normally analyse resource and capital DEL. However, capital expenditure is not voted for per se in the budget bill. Instead, the assembly votes for the net resource requirement and also the net cash requirement. The cash required to finance capital expenditure does fall within the net cash requirement. And the details on the calculation used are, are footnoted in the paper on page three. The 2020-21 spring supplementary estimates called for an increase of total net cash requirement of 1.27 billion and an increase in total net resource requirement of 2.23 billion from the main estimates provisions that were set out in the budget bill number three. In terms of individual departments, the largest variance in net resource requirement was for the Department for Economy, which required an increase of almost 900 million. And this equates to a 62% increase. The Department of Finance and the Executive Office both reported increases of more than 200%. And this was 234 million to, for the Department of Finance and 214 million for the Executive Office. The Department of Health reported a negative net resource requirement of 588 million, which is approximately an 8% decrease since the main estimates. The largest variance in net cash requirement was from the Department for Communities, with an increased net cash requirement of 500 million. Uh, the Department of Finance also experienced a large increase in cash requirement of 500 million. However, this was uh, uh, found to be a 230% increase. The executive office have a decreased net cash requirement of 21 million, and this was found to be a decrease of 9%. But as I mentioned, when we analyze budgets, we normally discuss resource DEL and capital DEL. The spring supplementary estimates documents include tables which provide information concerning the reconciliation of expenditure between estimates and budgets and present changes to resource DEL and capital DEL. So section three, starting on page five of the note, presents some of these changes. There's a proposed increase in resource DEL of 2.6 billion, and that's 18.6% overall, and an increase in capital DEL of 180 million, which is 11% compared to the main estimates. Figures two and three on pages five and six present these changes by department. So the largest monetary change in resource <laughs> DEL was 
Department for Economy, and this was for 751 billion, which equates to an increase of 69% of their main estimates budget position. The Department of Health experienced a large monetary increase of 581 million, and the monetary increase for the Department of Finance uh, resource Dell was found to be around 500 million. In terms of capital, the executive office have the largest monetary increase of 110 million, and this also equates to the largest percentage increase, and which is approximately 12, 1,200%. <coughs> the Department for Economy have the largest monetary decrease in capital Dell of 56 million, which is a decrease of 38%. Obviously, many of these changes are, are due to the pandemic and the unprecedented level of funding required for the Northern Ireland COVID response. And just to recap on that, Treasury have guaranteed an additional $3 billion of COVID-19 funding this year. Figure 1 on page 4 shows how this has been allocated to dates to the departments. Figure 1 shows that the Department of Health received more than $1 billion of COVID-19 funding, which was the highest allocation of any of the departments. The Department for Economy and the Department of Finance also received <laughs> side allocations of $644 million and $491 million, respectively. Due to the need to provide a rapid and flexible COVID-19 response, the COVID funding is allocated to departments on an ongoing basis. So it's not possible for all allocations to be included in the spring supplementary estimate figures this year. In order to avoid the possibility of returning funding to Treasury, the Department of Finance have built headroom into the calculations. So over 1 billion of headroom has been built into the calculations this year. And this headroom is um, in terms of resource Dell and capital Dell. Some allocations have already been made since, since the publication of the draft uh, spring supplementary estimates, and I think that it was discussed in the committee meeting last year, um, or last week, sorry, uh, some of these allocations that have already been made. Um, so I can take uh, questions on um, either of these two papers. Thanks very much indeed, Rachel. Paul? Yes, thank you, Chair, and thank you, Rachel. Uh, I'll go back to your original or your first uh, base paper. Uh, this, I found this quite fascinating. 36%. Um, because I suppose being the experience of being on the Finance Committee and, and, uh, and jostling with the Finance Minister in the Chamber, not only one time has the Minister said, well, look, I'm the Finance Minister, I can't do anything on my own, I need departments to bid. Uh, and then I will assess the bid. And you did in your presentation... You, you come up with the the burning question that we all have now, and that is, how are these bids then assessed? Uh, what criteria could be used? What process do they all go through? Uh, how are they churned out uh, in what someone described as a sausage machine at a time? Uh, and how then do they become successful or non-successful? And it intrigues me to find out those answers because in a five-party coalition there's going to be all sorts of problems and concerns and barriers and it just seems to be that this may well be one of them because one thing we'll not have in a five-party coalition is a, is a cohesive cabinet. Um, now you could get political but I won't but you could take individual departments and you could then allocate parties to those departments and then you could have a political question well why did you why did you uh, successfully grant 
a lot of bids to this department and not that department. And you can see how that will play out next week in the chamber. Uh, and I'm not being party political because whilst I could select my own party, I could also select the Department of Infrastructure, who seem to have had a lot of bids uh, turned down, for want of a better word. So it's fascinating. So, yeah, you know, let's take one, for instance, let's take the big one with regards to the most uh, bids, which is the Department of Economy uh, regarding number of bids, 88, I think it's in, in your paper. And, and then the percentage of those that were successful um, were only 30, 35 odd percent. Now, I'll never know, but if I was a minister and I was getting only 35% of my bids through, I would be raving mad. I would be jumping up and down. Um, so I would love to know how that plays out. Is that another paper you can do for us with yeah. regards to how, what processes are in place for the minister and the department to grant and to assess what bid is successful and what is not? Um, and surely there's a sign here, because you raised it yourself, there are times when ministers put in multiple bids for the same thing. Or, put it another way, put in multiple bids to the same people or the same organisations. I'll give you an example. I picked up the TransLink piece in the Department of Infrastructure, where it wasn't multiple bids that were refused, it was multiple bids that some were accepted or partially accepted. And that was, if you like, a, a, a funding stream throughout the year. Uh, so I, just, I know I'm not getting to a question, and it's more of a commentary, but, but what's, what's your... <laughs> That's what, a very true statement. What's Mr. your Peter? assessment? It's a very true statement. <laughs> and and I, I, any three of you can jump in here. What is your assessment with regards to the process and the, uh, the criteria used to assess bids and to point score them, if you like? Or is it down to one man or woman's political judgment, i.e. the finance minister? Um, I, can, I can come in there a, a little bit, um, Chair, with uh, not specifically in relation to the COVID bids, but in the in the regular annual guidance that DOF issues on the, the monitoring process. Um, it sets out different, there are different uh, sets of bids in a way which are uh, adjudicated on or allocated by different people. So some things can be submitted to just the Department of Finance and are done in effect I think at official level. But there are other things um, where perhaps there's a ring fence, which um, the old one that we used to that we used to know about was the uh, the charge. We're going to get interrupted by my daughter here. Yeah, I'm, I'm busy. Uh, oh, sorry. don't worry. Take no, care. do not worry. That is much more important than talking to us. One of our cats has brought a pigeon in through the cat flap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to do that in a minute. It's going to be carnage downstairs. Um, uh, <laughs> this happens every time. Um, uh, so, so there are certain decisions that are taken at executive level and some that are taken at departmental level, is what I was coming to. So in terms of that, that sort of political element, all budgeting is to a degree a political 
set of choices. So in terms of certain priorities being met by the executive at that level, that comes down to arguments being won or, or, or not at the, at the executive meeting, I suppose. But the other issue then is also about multiple bids. Um, in some cases, it may be that a bid comes and officials or ministers aren't necessarily happy with the assumptions that have been made in the in the calculation of the numbers and therefore um they'll be sent back and say actually look maybe can you can you go away and look at that again um and then it comes back in a slightly different form so there's there's potentially that element that's certainly a, a, a pretty standard part of the business case process can i ask then Colin, but is there a case that there's an executive meeting where uh, coming up to a gin monitoring or a monitoring round and all the all the ministers all the ministers around that executive table have all these cards, all these bids, and they're putting in the processes there and then. Is it as, is it as primitive as that? Or is that all done behind the scenes instead of around an executive table? Colin, this is much more interesting. <laughs> Colin Pigeon's called a Pigeon. I'm really sorry about this. Could we ask, could we ask Starleaf to go full <laughs> page on Colin there? <laughs> oh, Colin, Colin, go and put the Pigeon out, outside. <laughs> Colin, that, that, we'll, 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 skip that, we'll skip that question. You just go and put the Pigeon outside. I don't believe it. It flew off, so the cat hasn't, uh, hasn't killed it. Oh, it's going to say, well, no. We'll know what type of soup you're eating the night. <laughs> Congratulations, Colin. Well done. Well Boom. thought through that one. You kept your composure the whole way through that. Amazing. Okay. Well, okay. I've seen that going viral. I've done this for yeah. several years, but I've never, I've never been interrupted by wildlife before. <laughs> uh, so the question I, I posed there was. Is it as primitive as all the ministers sitting around the executive table and bidding here and bidding there and, and the, the finance minister being kingmaker for the day with regards to what's successful? Or is it done in a more robotic, mechanical, behind-the-scenes way? Uh, because ultimately, ultimately we know that not every minister can get things onto the executive table. But is there, is there, a, is there a function for the executive table in monitoring rounds? Um, well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not party to what goes on in the executive room, unfortunately. I, I mean, I think what, as far as I know, what happens is the paper goes to the executive, which has been prepared by officials. Yeah. Um, yeah. The minister will take the paper right. in, just, just, and there'll just be a week, discussion. Just week, just, um, Colin, just, 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 ministers on the committee, I think. Colin, just one other second. There is indeed Jim's uh, an ex yeah, minister, I, I, so you can. Yeah, I was there. No, you don't. There's no. Sort of like the Cincinnati kid, where you've got your deck of cards bidding for your uh, pet projects. It's not done by the executive. You just get a paper from DFP telling you who's got what. Yeah. But you don't actually negotiate with your executive colleagues as to what happens. I was in a slightly different position because I was a Minister of Health at the time, and we had a concession that we didn't bid in the monitoring round at that stage because we were allowed to adjust our budgets anyway. We which way we like between capital and revenue. But for the rest of them, no, you simply got a lead on high from the department. And then you went back and hit the face of the finance minister privately, but not at the executive. Okay. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Very enlightening. Philip? 
Hold up. Thank you, Chair. Uh, I, 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 I'm just glad. I mean, I've always wanted to be part of an online meeting that goes viral. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you never expected really that. I'm really glad that I'm not the subject of, of it. Uh, so, I, I mean, I'm just, uh, this is hilarious, Colin. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I mean, I, I'd love to be a headline writer, Colin Pigeon. When, when you first said that one of the children had pulled, uh, or the cat had pulled a pigeon, and through the letterbox, I was thinking, God, I hope it's an actual pigeon and not a member of your family. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I mean, it's my understanding. I mean, I'm not. I've never been a minister, uh, nor likely to be. But it's my understanding uh, that the it's actually the executive that does decide uh, the allocations uh, in terms of the monitoring round uh, based on the executive priorities, which I, which I, I presume are based on the program for government. Uh, so. I, I think that is the way that, it, that that issue is dealt with. I mean, in terms of the question around, you know, which department submits the most bids and, and you know, in terms of the graph and how it looks and all the rest of it, I mean, I, I think it's clear some of them have been uh, putting on the same bids, which skews the figure. And I mean, can I ask, in terms of the bids, are some of the departments actually separating or splitting the bids? which may in, in turn skew. So, for example, if you were putting in for a, a package for the tourism industry and splitting it like tourism one, tourism two, you know, is, is that considered uh, two separate bids? Uh, so, you know, the figures probably don't give an, a, a totally accurate reflection. I mean, I think the key uh, ask that I would have uh, chair through yourself is that, I mean, I think it was Colin made the point that, that this only is three quarters, and it really would be useful to get the full picture of the year that maybe uh, we ask uh, Riz to do that after the year is over, uh, so that we do get the full picture. Uh, so, I mean, basically, I'm asking, you know, is it possible in terms of departments the way they submit the bids? You know, it's it's actually not saying game is probably too big a word, game in the system to make it look like they're being knocked back multiple times. Sorry, yeah, yeah, I can. I, can, um, I think ahead, there is something to be said for instead of looking at how the bids are allocated and um, the, the, the process of bidding itself, the process of submitting the bids, because between the departments, um, there does, there's a lot of variation and we didn't get a lot of detail um, in the, the department responses that we had because the response was to the committee uh, via a template mm -hmm. and we don't have the original bidding documents. Um, but for example, the Department for Economy submitted multiple bids multiple times. Um, some of the departments have kept the same uh, titles of the bids and the same descriptions. Some other departments, it looks like it's probably the same thing, but we can't tell from the data that we have. Um, so I think maybe looking at the process of, of the bids in the first, the, there's a different, are there different departments seem to be um, submitting the bids um, using different strategies? Okay. Thanks. Okay. Thank you, Alicia. Alicia, dropped off. Can you hear me now? Yeah, we can. Yeah. Okay. Uh, through the chair, um, and I know what I raised at our last meeting as well. You see, and it was in relation to the bids, uh, and. Uh, 
are they influenced by the time they get interactively being uh, well, really successful? The question I was asking that time was on one of the pertinent to have a relation to road and infrastructure in the rural areas, but like there didn't seem to be any uh, later on in the year. Um, uh, and is there any explanation uh, like in relation to that? You know, uh, had they made bills at the wrong time of the year, or or what in fact is happening there? And I know that very often it does a strategy. You know that uh, you'll see a whole lot of roadworks going on at the end of the year. That that seems to be a time whenever uh, money is released for um, uh, the maintenance of roads and the likes of it, or to uh, use up whatever uh, excess funds that are that are still available. Uh, but that um, this year again too, that doesn't seem to be the case. So is there any, can you comment on that? Or? Your question surrounding, so I missed the third of the question, but it's surrounding the Department for Infrastructure bids, capital bids made throughout the year or at different points yeah. in the year? Throughout the year, in other words, again, too, you see, uh, just a little bit like what uh, Philip had alluded to earlier on there, uh, that whenever people are making bids and if they're not accepted, is it because of the time of the year the bid has been made? Uh, is it that uh, the, the, the the business case in itself isn't good enough because of the same bid is made then later on? Uh, it may appear to be delivered, but in the case of roads in particular, um, I'm surprised that there hasn't been any bids made in relation to uh, the maintenance uh, uh, off roads and that, and uh, again to this coming from a rural area where it's very much a priority for us, but that doesn't seem to be the case. So why is that, or is there any explanation for that type of thing, or why is it they don't seem to be successful in, 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 uh, uh, in making bids in that area? We don't have any information on uh, why bids were not successful. We only have information on if they were successful or if they were partially successful. Um, but there's so in Appendix One, there's a table of all the bids submitted. So the committee has asked the department for all bids, COVID and non COVID uh, bid up until October. So you can have a look at the Department for Infrastructure, like the number of bids, and if you're you know you can look through it and see what ones I. Off the top of my head, I can't see um, any relating to roadworks. I'm sure there are some somewhere. Um, but the uh, the Department for Infrastructure submitted bids in April, May, August, June, um, and October through the monitoring rounds and through the COVID exercise. Um, so that'll give you the detail on the bids that they submitted, but we don't have detail on why they were successful or unsuccessful. Well, I know that in the October mountain ride, there wasn't any bids uh, made in relation to roads or the likes of it. But I think it may be earlier on in the year that there may have been and they may have been knocked back. Yeah, we don't have any detail on why bids weren't successful. Some of the departments, when bids weren't successful, resubmitted the bids in later monitoring rounds. And mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure if that was the case for the roads bids. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Pat, do you want to come uh, Thanks very much. Thanks, Suppose there was a, an offer put forward there by uh, Mr. Frew there to maybe a, a bit of work from Rays in order to see where those bids were, were they successful, when they were made, and the reasons, if possible, for them not going in. I do believe that, uh, I suppose I can't speak, I don't want to make it political either, but it would be nice to know why in June 
bids were turned down, turned down in October, and now we see this bottleneck as we come near the year-end spend. I wouldn't like to think the politics played a part in it, but it would be nice for Rears to do that amount of work. And I would like to second that motion in order to see that, and be, to get that back as quickly as possible, taking in mind that we're, we're in the chamber next week on the budget. Well, I think what we'll have to wait until is we get to the end of the financial year so they can get the figures. Yeah. So actually, we probably wouldn't get it until yeah. a good piece of analysis. We probably wouldn't get until maybe May time. Right. So, but I think that it's a it's a valuable uh, be a valuable piece of work to compare, which I think is a very valuable piece of work that Rays have done. Yeah. And compare that by the final end of year figure, yeah. and it might also be worth historically looking back maybe two or th- no four years. So when the assembly was previously was running. And do a quick comparison, and I'm not looking at the world figures, but I'm looking at sort of the pinch points and how and how that how that flows through. Sure, but this year probably I agree with you that it'd be good in order to try and look that back. But I mean, I don't know where coming in on the pandemic. Are you with me? The strains which were put yeah. in the different departments that were there. But this, this, does this make it some way different or some way more special? I think the interesting thing, and I think from the evidence that we've seen today, and I thought the really interesting bit was if we looked at the first piece of evidence we had from Rays, and it showed basically it still follows the same pattern because mm-hmm. it's the annual budgetary spend. What we're seeing here, even with the extra COVID spending and the rest of it, you're talking about Department of Infrastructure, you're talking about, I'm not really sure about the Department of Economy because I want to have a more deeper dive into that because that 36% piece doesn't look there's something about that that I'm not quite um, content about it in my own mind, and I think of the Department of Infrastructure, but there's a definite trend that even with the extra money in the process that was coming through. The only thing I would consider, and one of the things I would ask the committee to consider, remember, we knew there was probably extra money going to come in from COVID throughout the year, but we were never quite certain when it was going to come. And it seemed to be there would be an announcement from London, and then the next day we were sort of 400 million up. We just didn't know where we were going along that process. So, in fairness to the Minister of Finance and the Department of Finance, I think and sometimes they didn't know what was coming in. They just knew something was coming, but we didn't quite know that. And that was probably quite difficult for budgeting. But there seems to be, a, there does seem to be a, a pattern here. Yes, and it would be good to see that come forward, that piece of work come forward, because it will show who put the brakes on the different departments. So, if we're content, are we agreed to ask for Ray to do a further piece of detailed analysis of this year? But obviously, wait until they've got the uh, figures and the, the potential to do that. Yeah, uh, Jack, Jack, previous years. A lot of details here, and it's really, really good. Each bid has been itemised, mm-hmm. and and the description from each department as to what the bid was for. It's all colour coded green, amber, and red as to whether it succeeded or failed or partly succeeded. What we don't know is the why, mm-hmm. and we don't know whether that's a mechanical operation in a department or whether that's political judgment. And that's I think that we would like raised to try and investigate, although it might be hard if it is political decision, you know, or political judgment. Well, I think sort of um, if it is a political judgment, that is something for us as politicians to deal with. But if actually, is if it's a process issue, mm-hmm. sort of the research would be able to raise that, and that might be something that we might share with the other committees. Yep. Bearing in mind, if we have identified a process issue, that they might like to consider with their when it comes to their budgeting process as well. Philip, sorry, once back in. Oh, sorry, Philip. Chair, I mean, I, I think if we are going to pursue that, that information, I, I think we, we, for the totality of the picture, sorry, yeah. we, we also need uh, more information, for example, 
and how bids that were successful turned out. Uh, I mean, for example, mm -hmm. the, the issue there raised in relation to if the DERA department had got their bid, they would have had 90 million extra that, that they that they weren't going to be able to use. Uh, I mean, and we are, we're all aware that the Department for the Economy had particular schemes uh, that basically they handed money back. So, I mean, I, I think the full picture, uh, you know, in terms of why bids weren't successful, I think we also would need uh, to understand exactly what happened with successful bids because that, that also plays, I mean, so if you're, if you're a department and you're asking for X million uh, and then in the next spent round you're handing Y million back, you know, I, I think the executive would obviously very carefully need to be considering whether a bid is going to be successful or not. Okay. Can I can I ask? There's right. an agility in that, though. There's to the chair. There's an agility in that. So let's take, for instance, the Department of Economy's voucher scheme. Uh, so you get the money for the voucher scheme, but if the shops aren't open, you need to hand that money back quickly. So if those bids were successful at the start of a monitoring round or the start of a financial year, then it gives you the capacity to hand that money back. But if you're still needing money for a scheme and you wait to the second or the third monitoring round, then you lose the capacity to hand it back if something else goes on toward that is outside of the Minister's responsibility. Uh, so that, that the agility is at the start of a process, not at the end. Like I think it was Melissa said about the always throwing money at infrastructure at the end of the year to do roadworks. That, that's not efficient spending at the time of the year when you don't really want to be laying tarmac because of the weather. Uh, or you don't want to be buying X amount of pairs of Wellington boots just because you have the money to spend. So there's more flexibility at the start of the process rather than the end of the financial year. Thank you. Okay. Well, thanks very much indeed. Um, Sir Colin, Chris, and Rachel, thank you very much indeed. And uh, Colin, uh, you're probably very much you'll probably be an internet star by the time we've finished. <laughs> Tell you what, you improved my morale today. It was pretty low. Is the cat all right? The cat's fine, yeah. The he, he was trying to get out the window after the bird. <laughs> <laughs> and as usual, team, thank you very much indeed for an excellent piece of research. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. OK, team, next item on the agenda, item number seven, written briefing, statutory committee's 2021-22 draft budget. The Committee for Finance wrote to statutory committee seeking their feedback on the 21-22 draft budget, which was the subject of public consultation with a view of producing a coordinated response. Clark's note briefing the statutory committee's feedback regarding the draft is on page 92, and feedback from all the statutory committees, with the exception of the TEO, is from pages 98 to 202. Um, there's a couple of key points, and I think I would probably like to put this in with your agreement. I'll be putting this in my address on the, the various bills next week. Um, first issue uh, within the TEO. Uh, apart from the fact it wasn't included, and thus there's no clarity on the victim's pension scheme and isn't provided, so it might be useful if the minister was able to update us on that. Justice, uh, there were concerns regarding PSNI numbers, and again there might be a question on sort of bids from the justice, uh, justice ministry in respect to that. Uh, infrastructure draft capital allocation is well below that was sought. And I think there's some they pointed out the committee uh, Pat said there are possible implications for Northern Ireland Water. So I think that should be of interest. Communities, the draft resource allocation is considerably below that which was asked, and for consequences for the payment of benefits. 
though there is an ambitious and welcome target for new social housing builds. And I think that's what, about 100 and... Uh, 1900? Yeah. Uh, the economy, there was a number of unfunded bids, including for the two voucher schemes, and I think the Deputy Chair has alluded to that. And apparently the post-COVID economic recovery action plan is still in development, and I understand that will probably be subject to the executive next week. In health, there are concerns about the absence of money for transformation to catch up on health waiting lists. Education, there are concerns about educational catch-up and addressing mental health issues as part of the school restart. And in agriculture, there is a number of important underfunded, unfunded or underfunded bids, including for bovine TB and Pillar 2 replacement funding. Members, do we have any comments or anything additionally we would like to put in? Triple. Yeah, I, I would echo your concerns about, about not having a TEO submission here. Uh, now I know it's a joint ministry, but you know something that's just not good enough. We're yeah. here for information. Uh, we're here to get information flow. The more information we have, information is the currency of democracy. And if we don't get it, nobody gets it. People out there in the street don't get it. So uh, it's very important that we get, when a committee asks for information and feedback, we should get it. I fear that you've already alluded to it, that because of the, the uncomfort around who pays the pensions for the victims, that they've just basically been aloof of this uh, request and have left it out. Uh, that worries me, concerns me, even in the last couple of days when there's been meetings taking place and there still seems to be this wrangling about money. Now, I get money is very important and pressures in any budget line have to be uh, met. Uh, but you know something? It's time that people stop playing politics with these victims and their lives. Uh, they're owed this money. There's been court cases over it, and they need to get it done. Thank you. Okay, thanks. And just just to note, if we look to the previous paper that we received again, I mean, if you look at the TEO sort of uh, resource dell down by in big handfuls down by thirteen point nine percent, but sort of capital dell uh, sort of gone up by you know thousand two hundred nine percent or whatever. There is. It's not as if we're just picking out the TEO because there might be one thing. There is some substantial changes, and actually, we sh we should have that information to be able to, to look to that as well. Okay. Any other comments? Okay. Uh, are members content for the chairperson to make reference to the above and the contribution on behalf of the committee in the budget debates next week? Yes. Agreed. Okay. Thank you. <coughs> Move on to uh, oral evidence of Construction Employers Federation uh, 2021 draft budget, and hopefully on Starleaf Assembly broadcast. Can we bring the witnesses in on spotlight, please? Mark Spence and David Fry. Thanks, Mark. Coming up now. And is David? That's David. There we go. Ventilated. Oh. Hi Mark, hi David. You don't have any pigeons that are going to fly through the windows or anything else exciting? <laughs> Purposely working from the office today so my dog wouldn't interrupt, but now feeling that maybe the dog would have been a, a, a good distraction. Yeah. Mark, David, it's really good to talk to you and really good to see you. Unfortunately, uh, we can't do it in person for, person for obvious reasons and I apologise for us running slightly late uh, as the committee proceeding as we go through. But thank you very much indeed. I just remind members that the session, uh, this session has been recorded by Hansard. 
Members are advised that the following papers are relevant to the agenda. Clerk's cover notice, page 211. Uh, the CEF's submission to the draft budget, page 205. And the consultation paper at 219. Uh, I don't know who it will be, Mark or David, but could you make your opening remarks, please? Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Chair. Thank you for the opportunity uh, to give evidence to the committee today on the draft 21-22 executive budget. Uh, my name is Mark Smith. I'm the managing director of the CEF, and I'm joined by David Fry, who is our director of external affairs. Uh, by way of background, the CEF is the certified representative body for the construction industry, which employs around 30,000 staff in Northern Ireland. Uh, we have over 800 members, ranging from micro businesses employing a handful of people to the largest construction businesses in Northern Ireland. And in total, our members account for around 70% of all construction output. Uh, obviously, uh, you have our briefing paper, but there are a number of points we'd like to cover uh, in this brief address. We'll start off with a few headlines from our own uh, membership survey in January, which covered the second half of 2020. Uh, from the survey, we saw that 2020 was clearly a year of two halves. Uh, two thirds of the annual turnover was completed in the second half, uh, reflecting the recovery from the initial lockdown period uh, during COVID. On average, for the year, turnover is still down by 20 to 25% on the previous year, and the, the number of firms reporting a deterioration in their profit outnumbers those reporting an improvement by more than 11 to 1. Members are seeing a very difficult market for new work well into this year, and a challenging context, therefore, for the draft budget. That being said, uh, the conventional capital budget at 1.75 billion, which is a substantial uplift from 2021, is to be welcomed. It is worth noting, however, that this is the first budget for the Northern Ireland Executive since 2007-8, uh, which has exceeded 1.7 billion. In the context of construction inflation alone in those intervening 14 years, this means that the Executive will get very much less bang for its buck uh, than in previous years. With a challenging commercial market in this year and likely next, there will undoubtedly be more competition for public work. That in many ways should be seen as a good thing, and it must be acknowledged that this is occurring at a time when a significant number of public sector works are being procured on the basis of price only. The absence of the evaluation of quality with respect to tender scoring has the capacity to drive the market down to unsustainably low pricing. And when you add this to the downturn in the commercial market, this creates something of a perfect storm. That storm has been exacerbated by the early year impacts on material supply and pricing. Well, publicised issues on matters like steel imports will likely begin to resolve themselves on the supply side, and where the price will settle is largely at the stage hard to gauge. That does put massive pressure on contractors now to price appropriately, both for one-off projects, but even more alarmingly for longer-term arrangements such as measured term contracts. In the wake of the UK's EU membership referendum in 2016, a number of government clients faced months of pressure in getting projects awarded on the ground. Uh, due to the understandable inability of contractors to stand over prices that have been submitted pre-referendum. Our concern is that a similar situation is now coming to pass, and that this, without flexibility on the part of clients, may lead to challenges with respect to getting contracts awarded in a timely manner, and in a manner that aligns with the detailed draft budget plans once they become available. On the detail, with the exception of the high-level spending allocations to each department, and some sporadic detail on specific projects, there is little information at present on how capital budgets will be spent by each department. Whilst we fully appreciate that the draft budget was only published on the 18th of January, we have been surprised by some clients suggesting that even indicative figures won't be published until April or perhaps May. This is a concern we've already shared 
aren't defined until the meeting with them on the 2nd of February. This process needs to be expedited or else we risk for yet another financial year real challenges in getting our capital budget spent in the most productive way. Mm-hmm. Whilst for our it creates uncertainty over the next two months with respect to what projects they will be pricing when they come to tender. We do of course acknowledge that a significant element of the 21-22 capital spend is already or contractually committed. On RRI borrowing, our sector's the use of this funding mechanism, particularly if this, is, if this is one stream of funding where construction has to be its premier output. It is also significant that the executive has earmarked this funding for two areas which are in drastic need, northern water and new build social housing. With respect to social housing, moving to 1900 new starts in 21-22 is a major statement of intent and one that our industry will look to actively support. We would, however, caution that one, uh, new build social housing is increasingly in dependent on the other, the wastewater treatment works capacity issues. So we hope that the figure has been set in a strategic manner. On the matter of Northern Ireland Water, our members are already part of a suite of contractors which will deliver a large element of the PC21 programme. Given, however, the scale of works required in PC21, it's important that there is early understanding of how much money will be allocated to Northern Ireland Water in 2122. £70 million of RRI borrowing is a good start, but by our estimate, the construction spend would need to be at least trebled, likely quadrupled, if not more, in the years thereafter to ensure that PC1 is delivered. Even with these growing allocations, we remain of the view that Northern Ireland Water's governance and funding challenges must be urgently reassessed. There's the Mark, Mark just a quick one. Have you yes. got a figure in your head? Because I know that you will have looked forward to this. I mean, how much is it... How much is it going to cost to rebuild the water infrastructure, and what what is what is the what is the quantum we're looking at? I would refer to David on that, who's closer to those numbers. Yeah, I mean, sure. If I just jump in there, I mean, PC twenty one. You're talking about an investment of I think one point seven billion over six years, which is what the utility regulator has said in their draft determination, but even allowing for that and even on the basis that DFI was able to fund that to its absolute requirement, that would probably deal with less than 50 of the existing capacity constraints at different wastewater treatment plants. Um, We're already nudging about 150 plants that have constraints. So, you know, even over the course of the next six years, we would only be able to deal with about a third of them. And that, of course, doesn't then include the other sites which would likely reach capacity over the course of the six years that there's currently no funding allocation for. So, you know, the funding that's been talked about for the coming year's budget is is welcome, um, but it, it's you can nearly argue it's not really going to touch the sides that much in terms of the overall challenge that we face. So, sort of... So just doing my quick sort of um, sort of maths on this, we're looking at sort of water alone needs about three billion. Uh, well, I think the Northern Ireland Water originally put in a bid closer to two and a half billion over the six-year period, and the regulator has taken that down to closer to one point seven. So, you know, and this is this is something which it isn't just particular to this price control. I think this has been going on for, for several price controls, probably back as far as PC 13, I think it was. So, 
you know, and, and look, we're trying to engage with Northern Ireland Water at the minute around solutions engineering on certain sites where there are wastewater treatment capacity issues, but, you know, some of those will only be very small scale in nature and really won't help us deal with the fundamental problems that we're all faced with. Okay, thanks. Okay, if I just continue then, uh, on the matter of the housing executive reform, uh, it's of concern to us that no funding has been allocated against taking this forward in 21-22, with a bit of over three million for transformation not being funded to date. It's important that the Department for Communities now addresses what, if anything, it will take forward uh, from the proposed transformation programme ahead of next year's assembly elections. On the matter of executive flagships, we welcome the further allocations as these will ensure these forward and in the case of the large bulk of the A6 works, they'll actually complete during 21-22. We do, however, raise our opinion that we've held since the flagships were first announced in December 2015 that looking to formation of a new executive after next year's election, caution needs to be exercised with regard to the conditions for naming or categorising a project as a flagship. The ring fencing that has been applied to these projects over the last five years has worked in scenarios where the projects are actually at or close to their construction stage. While projects like Phase 1A of the A5 and the redevelopment of Casement Park are important and must be speedily, speedily delivered, we have seen monies returned against each in the January monitoring round because neither has entered construction in the financial year. With respect to the Struhl shared educational campus after three years of financial uncertainty with respect to that project, it's very welcome to see its funding now ring-fenced in the truest sense as a key deliverable of the £500 million over 10 years uh, shared education element of the Fresh Mark, Start Agreement. Mark, just, just talking about the executive flagships, is obviously the one thing that is missing, but something that's been fundamental to trying to get Northern Ireland P PLC moving has been the York Street interchange. And yes. again, as a major construction project, um, you know, the, the need for... We seem to be... There's an awful lot of effort being put on the peripheries, but obviously... York Street interchange is an issue for the infrastructure minister and the rest of it. But actually something that large, I noticed you haven't made reference to that. And then most previous years, I mean, in the conversations you and I have had for many, many years, sorry, it seems like many years, but probably the last three or four years, was about the importance of the York Street interchange and sort of the infrastructure that needed to be built. And also the signal that would have sent to the construction industry that sort of Northern Ireland PLC could have actually significantly invested in quite a few areas. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? No, the Yorkshire interchange, uh, as you know, is, is under review by the, the Minister uh, for Infrastructure. Now, that, that was promised as a, a fairly brisk piece of work, and, and we would have expected maybe to have heard some progress on that. Certainly, as a construction project, it, it's very welcome, and from a logistics point of view, uh, we, we would welcome it. We understand there are other issues to be taken into consideration, but we, we would certainly wish to see that progress uh, very soon. And we're disappointed not to have seen it to this point. Okay, thanks. Um, just mentioning about Struhl uh, campus there, um, with 28 million pounds of that set aside for 21-22, we look forward to that project returning procurement in the short term. On that project, we do retain our long-held view, uh, and it marries with the strategic approaches contained in the construction playbook. Uh, that this is a type of project uh, and there's a campus with five separate schools which should be considered uh, to be awarded in lots rather than as one. We retain the view that had that, a version of that model been taken forward in 2017-18 when the project was last in procurement, it would now be nearing completion. 
This is something we'd be happy to discuss further with the committee uh, in their evidence next week on procurement. Yeah. Uh, financial transactions capital, this has proved a hugely challenging part of funding to allocate and deliver through its decade-long existence. Uh, while the creation of the NI Investment Fund gave a vehicle to deliver some of that spend, the figure hasn't exceeded in total 100 million during the fund's operation to date. It's therefore welcome that before the commencement of the new financial year, the 21-22 allocation has been assigned and we can see a path towards it being spent. Finally, looking to the future, we concur with the Finance Minister's position with respect to getting additional fiscal flexibility with respect to the capital budget and specifically end of year carryover. We do acknowledge that the Executive wasn't able, as had been the plan, to set a multi-year budget due to the one-year comprehensive spending review. We remain firmly of the position that this must be a medium-term goal, given the undoubted benefits with respect to areas like planning uh, for such as new new build, social housing, and the effectiveness of spend on road uh, maintenance and budgets. At this stage, and given that the next Westminster election is still three years away, we would anticipate a further CSR by the UK government this year. That may give the executive financial certainty, or at least a financial floor, for 22-23 onwards, and it would be good to know what the executive's intentions would be with respect to such figures as they enter an election period. In a concluding remark, then, CF is also uh, supportive of proposals relating to the establishment of an independent fiscal council and an independent infrastructure committee. Uh, there are comments in, Chair, and we're happy to take questions from committee members. Okay, thanks very much, Arine. Um Just, and I think they're sort of quite interrelated, but... You refer in your paper about the need for reform of governance of the housing executive and Northern Ireland Water to help them to address deficits in the infrastructure. Could you expand a bit on that? The uh, housing executive, uh, the minister last year, did uh, present proposals uh, for such uh, restructuring. Um, what we do see, however, is that the funding to support that transformation program does not appear to be in place, which raises questions as to the. the time scale or intent uh, to deliver those reforms. Northern Ireland Water, um, without a doubt, we, we, we are firmly of the view and long been of the view that there needs to be significant reform of the funding of Northern Ireland Water. Uh, there have been a number of academic reviews done of different models. It's not for us to decide which model, but certainly from a construction point of view and from a market point of view, what we can see very clearly is that development uh, is grinding slowly to a halt in this country. And, and that's not just on, on residential, that, that will impact on commercial properties, uh, bringing people to live into the city centres, uh, schools, hospitals, every aspect of life is going to be impacted by that. And I suppose from our point of view, we, we are looking for a champion in, in government to actually lead some uh, review of reform for Northern Ireland. That, that doesn't seem to be the case at present. Thanks, Mark. Jim. I'm sorry, Gemma. 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 Hi, Gemma. Thank you. Um, thank you, Mark. Um, I just have a question around PT21. Um, can, can I just ask, have you said that started and where are the locations and which is are starting? And the other one, just carry just the comment that Bill's made there. You say development in the north could come to a halt because the surge infrastructure isn't right. I might have picked you up wrong, just looking for clarity on that one, but if you could um, answer the one about the wastewater treatment plant locations, um, I'd appreciate it. Okay, if, if I answer your second question first, then I'll ask David to address the PC21. But yes, ab absolutely, at this point in time, um, social housing applications, 
uh, applications for commercial and retail and industrial uh, developments are being ceased by the lack of suitable sewage infrastructure. That's an absolute fact. Uh, generally, that's the case at the moment, and, and that is getting worse. But it has been the case for some time, absolutely. And I'll ask David if he could give you a flavour of, of the PC21. Yeah, so, so uh, as we understand it, so the PC21, probably on, on the wastewater side, you're talking over the course of the six-year period, I think the plans are to upgrade around 50 of the existing constraint sites. Um, I, I am not entirely aware as yet of exactly where they are. There, there is a sort of Northern Ireland water map that has red dots and green dots, and sometimes they change and go with it. But what... What the good thing about the PC21, that six year period, is you already have a suite of contractors in place to deliver those upgrade works. Um, the vast majority of them won't necessarily require new procurements that could get into legal challenges. There might be some call offs done where, you know, some of the contractors would actually be having many tenders against each other for, for projects. By and large, the key issue here is the funding. If the funding flows, those projects can be taken forward in a timely manner. I think where our issue is with this is that Northern Ireland Water, I think in this current financial year, their, their capital budget was about 140 million. You, you're really talking, if you, if you want PC21 to be delivered in line with what the utility regulator has said, you are talking about trebling that number in the next two or three years. That, that, that's the quantum, and that's an annual figure, you know, that, that's the quantum of money that we required. Um, and, you know, where, where that sits in DFI's budget, you know, if you're talking about upwards of 400 million of capital each year going to Northern Ireland Water alone, um, you know, in this current financial year, I think DFI's entire budget was 550 million. So, we, you know, you, you can see that if, if you don't, look at Northern Ireland Water's governance and funding. And you know, again, we're not expressing an opinion one way or another on what we mean by that, but it, it, it's, it's very hard to see the need being met uh, when you then factor in TransLink, roads, um, and, and frankly, all the other elements of capital expenditure which aren't construction, uh, of which you, you could be talking 40% of any department's capital budget isn't actually on construction. Yeah, thank you. That's actually really concerning um, regarding the, the sewage infrastructure across the north. I honestly kind of thought it was just my own constituency that it was suffering, but um, that, that's very concerning that it's, it's impacting that much that construction might be halting. So thank you very much, um, David and Mark, for that. Okay. Um, Mark, um, they sort of one of the things, of course, now that we, and I know you're coming to talk to us later on about public sector procurement and the rest of it, but, you know, identifying problems in the current procurement of public sector capital projects, which could be addressed and lack the inefficiency and lack of competitive tendering. Is that down to the, um, the executive making effective use of the new procurement board? Or do you think there's another mechanism we should be looking at to do that as well? to be able to encourage the sector and obviously the sustainability of competitive tendering? Yes, uh, as you mentioned, Chair, I'm on the procurement board 
Yeah. Uh, we, we've met twice now, so it, it's early days for the procurement board, but some, some important uh, decisions have been made in that board already uh, to review existing guidance and processes and make sure that they are fit for purpose. Uh, it, is, it is a key role for government to try and ease the burden uh, for all bidding parties, and I'm not just talking about construction here, all parties are interested in working with government and providing services and goods. And that, that process needs to be as streamlined as possible. It needs to be as consistent as possible. And this means, therefore, that you know, there will be a greater field of entrance, more competition, uh, better value, but very much not about driving down the price. And that is a major concern we have at the minute, increasingly the use of price of tendering. In other words, appointing on the lowest bid and not taking into account the, the, the quality of what may be delivered. That's a huge concern to us, and especially in a what is frankly a, a fairly gloomy economic context uh, at the moment and probably for the next number of years. Um, Behaviour will drive prices down to a point where they're not sustainable uh, and companies will go under and jobs will be lost and clients will be left with projects not completed, which is, is far from ideal either. So we're, we're working with Procurement Board uh, at the moment to see if we cannot reintroduce the quality aspect to all tendering, make sure that quality is maintained and that prices do not go sub-economic because it, it's not in anybody's interest for a sustainable market. I know the situation is probably not the same, but you know, looking at what happened on the York Road campus and one of our major construction firms basically going under uh, during the whole sort of process of that, do you think any lessons have been identified? I don't think, I'm, I'm not being as presumptuous to say that lessons have been learned. But do we think any lessons have been identified? And I welcome you being appointed onto the uh, procurement board. Uh, when it was first muted, I was we had concerns that it, uh, the type of people who would have been on it. But I'm glad to see that industry has been brought in to bring its level of experience. But we'll we'll talk about more about that sort of next week. But sort of the particular question and particular concern that we obviously have is are we properly identifying those problems now so that you know by setting up a new structure we're actually going to make a change or a, you know is it too early days yet to think that the culture has indeed changed yes it, it could be early days um but we do have a we do have a groundswell now of if you like evidence from different projects um, we have the public accounts committee report as well as the the audit office report on, on capital projects and, and they both identified structural failures and systematic failures and learning points. Um, so we would like to think that those are being absorbed by the departments and certainly we'll be working uh, with all parties uh, and available to give our input and feedback whenever required. Um, it's difficult to, to focus on one particular project, but I, I do believe lessons need to be learnt. I hope they will be learnt, um, but the, the, the evidence is there to be seen. So I think Going forward, there needs to be much greater accountability uh, for the failure of procurements um, and more explanation provided and feedback provided on those failures rather than them just being absorbed and, and retended. Okay. Thanks, Mark. Thank you very much indeed. Okay. Pat, Pat. Hmm? Pat. Sorry, Pat. Sorry. Okay, thanks very much. One second, what the chair said. It's good to know that that calibre from. The real world in the way of sitting on the procurement board there and I wish every success with it. Can you tell me or do you have you any ideas for, for a shot in the arm, a quick shot in the arm for our economy? Just looking at the draft budget, what 
the Construction Federation would come up with some ideas or provide some ideas in order to make this quick turnaround as possible, as quickly as we possibly can? Is there a quick win? The quick wins are about doing things right and doing them once. And I think this is where projects have gone off the rails in the past and time has been spent and wasted on, on re-procuring them. The, the, we always talk about shovel-ready projects, and I think that's been mentioned already in this afternoon's session. Shovel-ready is important, but it needs to be strategic shovel-ready. And, and the big concern we have with budgets and the way it's presented is that we, we talk about a single-year budget. In reality, for us in, in construction, it can very often be a, an eight-month budget. By the time departmental allocations are decided and the departments come out with their, their list, if you like, of, of projects to be tendered, we're, we're well into the year already. I, I think we struggle to understand why when capital budgets are fairly consistent from year to year, they do not change dramatically from year to year. Could departments not take a view of perhaps taking 75 or 80% to be safe of capital and saying that's almost guaranteed? That's almost certain to happen. Let's now plan for next year. Instead of waiting to get the, the pounds and the pennies exactly right before then, producing a list, it, it doesn't seem the most efficient way to do things. And certainly for our members who will be saying to us, where's the pipeline? What's coming? What do we need to prepare for? And we can't tell them until we're two or three months into the year we're talking about. It doesn't provide for very strategic tendering. Uh, and I think, again, sorry to be mentioned this afternoon session, we do have that end-of-year rush to spend the money. And again, nobody's going to complain that money is being spent, but is it being spent in the most effective, efficient way to sustain jobs? Probably not. So the multi-year budget, I know, is not a, not necessarily in the gift. It's not happening this year. It's got to be a very strong ask uh, for following years to allow efficient and effective planning. That, that would be the best way as you say, to, to, to inject some, some vigour into the economy locally through construction. And for, what about the, the, the green economy? Is there a way that we can look at, look at all of that potential that's out there? Or what can we probably do as MLAs in order to try and facilitate and help you on that? Yes, we, we, we think construction is a very strong role to play in, in the green economy. Um, if we look at in, in England at the moment, there's a, a very well-funded uh, retrofit strategy for energy efficiency in homes where householders are given a significant grant towards works. And we would really welcome uh, a strategy like that locally, which could be funded. Uh, we'd also provide a lot of skills uh, for people maybe transferring from other sectors which have been worse hit by COVID. Would be welcome in construction, could be trained uh, Retrofitting because it would be a big ask. But if you even took account of the housing executives to state, um, which is a very significant piece of work to be done there in terms of energy efficiency, and we certainly think construction could be a part of that, and that could be mobilised relatively quickly if funding were made available. Well, thanks, okay, thanks very much today. Lisa? Oh, Lisa? There, uh, just a couple of points that was actually made. One of them in relation to uh, an increase in labour costs. Yeah, uh, is, is that as a result of uh, lack of supply? Uh, is it the result of maybe the lack of training within the labour force, or i.e., particular skills, or what is this contributing to that? So labour costs wouldn't be a particular concern at the minute. Um, certainly it's more of an issue, I think it's impacted more in the GB market where a lot of 
uh, foreign workers have left the country. That hasn't been the case here. There's always an increase in labour costs. If we have an increase in labour costs here, it tends to be due to a lack of skills. Part of that is a reflection of the industry as having maybe not been as sustainable in recent years. Uh, the pipeline has, has been uh, variable. So if we can present a stronger pipeline, and it's back to the, the multi-year budget question, the public sector, which is the, a, a main plank of the construction industry, can present a, a long window, a long-term budget and sustainable investment. It's very much easier to recruit people into the industry. Uh, so it, it is always a, a matter of supply and demand. Yeah. And just in addition, uh, you also then uh, had made the point that uh, 79% had experienced delays in the supply chain as a result of COVID and Brexit. Uh, in what way did COVID impact on it and how does Brexit impact on it? Okay, so the, these results, uh, if we uh, put it in context, this was our survey which we conducted uh, over the new year. Um, so we haven't done a more up-to-date survey, so those, those results were at that point in time. Uh, our sense is that supply issues have been resolving. We are not getting uh, as many uh, comments back from members that are having difficulties. Certainly in January there, there was a rush, a rush of problems and various things coming to light. I, I think those are tending to, uh, to resolve at the minute. Um, as to the break between, between COVID and Brexit, they became rather muddied and intertwined over the new year. Um, I think now what we're talking about is rerouting some supply chains. Uh, and members have had to, to figure that out, but some of them have now sourced materials uh, from the Republic rather than from GB to avoid some of the issues there. But um, it's our impression that this, the situation is, is improving over time. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Are you happy, Melissa? Yes. Thank you, Chair. Okay. Thank you very much indeed. Sir, uh, Mark, David, thank you very much indeed for your evidence, and we look forward to uh, talking to you again next week. Okay. Be safe. And keep it steady. If we now move on to the next item of the agenda, it's the oral evidence on the Department of Fa Do I have to ask them to take it off the spotlight, too? That's this crowd. Yeah, that's it. That's uh, next bit is the oral evidence, Department of Finance, Draft Budget Bill 2021, Spring Supplementary Estimates and the Voting of Count. Joanne, Jonathan and Rushi. Hi, Joanne. Hi, Chair. Hi, Rushi. Can she hear us? Hi, Rushi. She's mute. She's mute. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Chair. Thank you. Okay, first question. Have you got any pigeons? <laughs> Since we're now trending, apparently. <laughs> you need to explain it. <laughs> we're all amongst friends. It's okay. Right. Okay, everybody. Um, yeah, mind the members, the session has been reported by Hansard. Um, advise members that the, uh, the following papers are relevant to the agenda item. Um, Peter's note on page 294, a chairperson's letter to the Speaker regarding accelerated passage of page 297, uh, the departmental SSE uh, position bill at page 300, the departmental bill paper at page 310, the budget bill at page 323, spring supplementary estimates at page 378, and the voting account on page 718, and a response to recent committee que uh, queries in the tabled items. Joanne, do you want to make an opening statement, please, and then we can get stuck into it? 
Yeah, thank you, Chair. First of all, I'd like to thank the committee for agreeing to accelerate passage for the, the budget bill. Um, I also appreciate this further opportunity to brief the committee on the 2021 SSEs and the 21-22 voting account. Following our session last week, the committee has written with a, a number of queries. I'm not sure if the response of that has issued yet, but I'll try and cover in my opening remarks in any case. Yes, please. So, one of the questions asked was about spending areas in England, which gave rise to the 300 million allocation to the executive earlier this month. Unfortunately, the way in which the final amounts have been calculated by Treasury means it's not possible to determine which spending areas actually gave rise to the adjustment. Um, the way that Treasury calculated is basically they've taken the difference between the amount we got under the guarantee and the total fund, additional funding provided across all Whitehall departments for the full year. Right. We don't have the breakdown of what actually gave arose in that last adjustment. A further query was on whether the resource authorised under the voting account for 21-22 will or can provide support for funding under new services. While the voting account can provide for funding under new services, I can confirm that in this instance, no new services have been authorised under the voting account. Right. Had they been authorised, the bill itself would have been footnoted. The committee also requested a breakdown of departmental department of spending related to public-private partnerships or public-private, sorry, private finance initiative projects. This information is collated by the Executive Office and it is included in Treasury publication of PFI liabilities at a UK-wide level. Executive Office has provided us with the latest published position, which is for 2018, and we'll attach a table summarising that in the written response. But by way of summary here, there are a total of 26 projects across six departments, which would have a capital value of about 1.2 billion and the estimated unit charge this year for all of those projects, 216 million. However, two of those projects which are included in that table have subsequently been bought out by central government. So the PFI company is now wholly owned subsidiary of, of government. So in a way, it is circular money for those two particular projects. Sorry, well, so the PFI project has been bought out by the government? By the department itself. So, so therefore the it's... actual. So I don't have all the details, but the actual company itself has been bought over by the department. So the PFI, in theory, still exists, but the, it's circular money because the department is paying its own subsidiary. Is that and a bit there, like when Invest and I bought its own building? Is that, sorry, is that sorry. a bit like when Invest and I bought its own building and then yes. put it on a different set of books? Yeah, that, that's I, it exactly. I, I can never get my head and, around And the that. other one is the Water Alpha project. It's something similar. Right, okay, yeah. Uh, one of the other things requested was uh, a detailed explanation of the use of cash advances for the consolidated fund, including why and when these advances were required in 2021 and how the profile of spending from consolidated fund for this purpose compared with previous years. So, so far this year, Department of Finance has accessed 197.8 million, 90 million in January 2021 and 107.8 million in December 2020. This was to enable them to administer, administer the localised restrictions support scheme and to take forward financial assistance schemes for both Belfast International and Belfast City Airport. In line with the normal processes, MLAs were informed of these advances in writing and we'll append copies of these letters to our written response for your information. A number of other advances have been made this year to the Executive Office and the Utility Regulator. However, yeah, these have been sorry, repaid John, John, and therefore do not impact on the total resources available to be advanced at this time. Joanne, what was the advance for the utility regulator for? And why did it was simply it? In, in anticipation of receipts because the utility regulator is primarily funded from receipts and those receipts hadn't come in and uh, you know, delays in getting royal assent 
meant that they needed that additional funding, but it has since been repaid. So receipts they were the receipts they were due from where? They charge um yeah. Jonathan or, or Rashi may not know him, but they charge for their services or, or have a levy. So they are primarily funded by receipts. They get very little sort of central government funding, but those receipts tend to come in later in the year. So in the early months of the year, they re they require funding in their voting account and the funding that was voted wasn't enough. So they had to get an advance, but they've since paid that back. Okay. 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 Yep. Keep them. Yeah, in the lead up to the SSEs in 2019-20, only 19 million was advanced to departments from consolidated fund. That was due to a delay in receiving royal assent. But the, the circumstances between 1920 and this year are completely different. So we can't really compare like with like by doing that. I mean, the impact of the pandemic is this year, for example, the 197.8 million for DOF was purely related to COVID support. Um, the final issue I'd like to, to talk about it in my opening remarks. The committee had asked us to provide an addendum correction slip to the current SSEs in order to provide full and proper explanation as to the reasons for the sole use of sole authority of the budget bill. Yeah. Le the level of detail previously provided in the Northern Ireland estimates was, as you probably be aware, the same as that included in Westminster estimates. We have included additional information in the SSEs for 2021. It's disappointing that the committee does not consider this sufficient. We will provide in our written response, which should be with you shortly, further detail of each use of the sole authority of the Budget Act. And I would welcome the committee's views on the appropriate level of detail to include in the document. I think there's a balance to be had between making sure the assembly is properly informed and adding more detail to a already very bulky document. So once you've had a chance to consider the information we've provided, I would welcome your views on how much or if all of that you, you would like to be included in the document. So I hope this has provided some information on the issues raised. We're happy to take any further questions. Okay. Yeah, just a couple. Of, um, in respect to the treatment of headroom in the spring supplementary estimates, um, is the department going to add further details in the spring supplementary estimates? And I think this is a different thing because we're talking about the headroom, which set it out yeah. where the final COVID and other spending was made in order to make the SSC a final complete record of expenditure in 2021. And we're fully aware of the sort of the you know, where we are with the, uh, was 247, now 300 million, how that's that issue as well. But could you make a comment on that, Joanne? Right, well, the Assembly will be informed when allocations are made. They have been already. Um, there's announcements on the 2nd and the 10th of February. Those 10th of February allocations were included in that headroom and now our final allocations. We would anticipate further announcements in the coming weeks, hopefully next week, on those allocations. So the Assembly will be will be informed. Um, we don't currently have any intention to include that in the SSEs. The SSEs may well be introduced before those allocations are announced, but the Assembly will be will be completely informed what those allocations are. And if it would be helpful, we could probably include for the committee, we can reconcile that to the headroom, if that would be helpful. Yeah, it would be. Um, yes, please, Joanne. Thanks very much indeed. Sort of, uh, Jim, Jim, are you there on Starleaf? Starleaf? Yes, good afternoon. Hi, Jim. Hi, uh, Joanne, I wanted to ask again about the issue touching upon the um, victim's pension. Because yes. obviously we're about to embark upon a budget in Schedules 3 and 4 will include expenditure for next year. Um, yet, certainly in the draft budget, there's no indication. How, therefore, is this expenditure going to be provided for? Okay, the 
expenditure that's included in this budget bill is a voting account, which is purely based on a percentage of last year's expenditure and is intended just to cover departments in the first few months of the financial year until the main estimates are brought. Those main estimates will reflect the executive's final budget. So between the, the draft and final budget, the executive can change the, those spending plans. And you will know that there has been a meeting with the Secretary of State on ongoing discussions on how those should be funded. And uh, hopefully that will be included in the executive's final budget and then, then will be reflected in those main estimates. But does that not need to be included in the spring supplementary estimates as a provision? That would be a matter for the department, uh, for the executive office. I'm not sure whether they have included something for that or not. It's probably the, uh, it is probably that the timings and amounts are uncertain at this stage, and you need a certain degree of certainty before you can include either provision or approved cost. Sorry, Jim. Well, could I just come in there? If, sorry, uh, could I come in there due. just for one second? Uh, Joanne, the minister, I think, when he was on the floor of the assembly uh, earlier on this week. Uh, quoted a figure of anywhere from 600 million to 1.2 billion. 1.2 billion. Yeah. And I think sort of the last time, Joanne, we were talking uh, uh, was the week before, where you said that you'd, figures had come from the TEO, but you didn't have the details of what they are. Could you just give us a bit more detail about what the quantum is? Because it seems to be the, the minister seems to be quite well informed if it's going to be between. Well, it's, it's a big difference between yes. 600 million to 1.2 billion but uh, can you give us a more outline of that figure sorry about that jim but i just sorry i want to do that yeah um i don't actually have the detail of the, of the figures themselves in front of me but you're right there, there's a range of figures and the reason for that is that the executive office have commissioned the government actuaries department to do a report on the, the figures and those are the range of costs that they have identified unfortunately i don't have the report in front of me but it certainly goes from that lower figure to the maximum figure of 1.2 billion based on the, on the GAD estimates of what the scheme will cost. Can we see that report? Um, it's not my report, it's the Executive Officer's report. All right, okay. Jim, sorry. Uh, John, do you have the spring supplementary estimates in front of you? If I can find them electronically, I will have them. If it may, may take me a minute, sorry, it's uh, not as good as right. having the actual. I'd like you to old-fashioned document in front of you. I'd like you to go to page two hundred and seventeen. <laughs> Sorry, I have the document. It just takes a while to get through to the pages. Okay, yes, page 217. You see under provisions? 430 million. There's been added in 430 million. What's yes. That for? Um, I'm afraid I can't even find the provision on page 217. Uh, Maybe the pages of my, my version, being the electronic version, may have slightly different page numbering. Um, it's obviously under TEO. Yeah, sorry, I am looking under TEO. It's just it's a yeah. It's the first. Um, it's part two changes proposed resources. It's the first table really in TEO's section. And it's Amy. A six. It's Amy. Yes, provisions would would be Amy. Well, 
Yes, sorry, no. yes. Yes, I know. Before you get, before you turn to the next page. Yeah, um, sorry, I see, I see, I see that. Um, there is. I'm going to turn to sorry, Jonathan or Roshin, who may have more detail on the, what's underpinning those it's a huge provisions. Of money. I just wanted to know what it is. Yeah, that's okay. I'm not sure if Roshin or Jonathan have that information. I'm afraid I don't have it in front of me. I don't. I mean, we can we can write unless Roshin. Do you want to? You're you're nodding. Oh, you're on yet. Well, we can back and write. Yeah, we, we, we will get you that information. Well, well, can anyone tell me has that anything to do with the victim's pension? I, I wouldn't like to comment at this time and give you the wrong information. We, we will confirm that very quickly. We'll come, we'll come back and include that in our response, which is hopefully about. But Joanne, it's a phenomenal increase. Provisions at the outset were 19 million. Now there's an extra 430 million. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's something to do with the historical institutional it, abuse. It could well be. But I would be interested to know, because it's into Amy yeah. uh, on the next page, is it anything yes. to do with the pensions? And is that not yeah. what we expect to see the victim pension provision being made? Yes, all provisions would, would, would be in Amy. So yes, you're absolutely correct. If it was a provision for victims' pay, pensions, it would be in there. Similarly, if, as you said, for a struggling institutional abuse, if there's a provision, it would also be in there. So we, we'll get the breakdown of that increase in provisions for you. Because the victim's pension should be in, I'd suggest, to as a provision. Because you know it's going to be due, uh, you know it's a debt that's to be paid, uh, and isn't that the criteria for putting in a provision, once you know what the um, the, the amount's going to be? Yeah, I, I think the issue, I would refer to the executive office on how certain they are in their figures. I think the issue would be that they need to be have some degree of certainty over the likely cost and the timing, but we will find out if it is included in that they've provision. Had an actuary, they've had an actuary report. The minister has been telling us that. So yeah, the government the themselves have put a figure on it. So the actuary's report gave the actuary's report gave a sorry the actuary's report gave a range of figures, and I think it came in after the SSEs were prepared. Yes, but not before the budget goes to the house. Yes, and I will get the information from the executive office on what is included in that provision. So, so like I'd like to know, is the minister going to be amending this budget to include the pensions, or how does he intend to legally provide for the funding, or is he just going to hide it in an excess vote next year? Well, the, the provisions doesn't actually give rise to a cash requirement. The provision is an accounting treatment, so there will be no cash requirement for that. It also doesn't provide the funding for the payments themselves. As you say, that would have to be included as a DL cost in the budget. And when the, the final budget is published, hopefully those, those payments will be included in that, and that will be reflected in the main estimates. If, if not, then it would have to be reflected in next year's spring supplementary estimates. So as, as the Department of Finance within less than a week of the budget debate uh, and the votes on account, you don't know what, of anything, is being put in for victims' pension. I'm not clear what is in that provision in the TO account. You'll appreciate it's a very large document with a lot of detail, and I'm, unfortunately I'm not over the detail of, of everything that departments have included. They are indeed departments' estimates, and departments decide what goes into those estimates. So. And in fact, with the provision, we will get a breakdown of what is included in that provision. I'm not clear whether the executive office have included a, a provision for victims' payments. I think that they may not because the amounts are as yet uncertain.
but that does not relate directly to the budget and the need to include funding for those victims' payments in as a Dale cost in the budget. Well, well, surely schedules three and four of the budget bill are indicating what's going to be paid in, in the next financial year. They are simply a vote on account. They're a bridging mechanism. They do not reflect what's in the executive's budget. They just give the departments the authority to spend cash in the first few months of the year. Well, the not, provision that you're talking about is actually in this year's in 2021's I SSEs. That. I appreciate that, but would you not need a vote on account to start paying the pension uh, in the new year, in the new financial year? You would need it to be covered in the ambit of the department who's going to be paying the pension. Um, again, I, I would hope that it is, but I would need to check that. Um, but you don't need to have the money there. The vote on account is not based on the budget. It is only, uh, as I say, a bridging mechanism and it's a percentage of the previous year's expenditure. So provided it is included in the department's ambit, then the department can spend that vote on account on it. And if it wasn't included in the ambit? Then the department couldn't spend any money on it. So the minister would need to ensure that provision is made in the ambit for schedules three and four for the payment of the victim's pension. Yeah, the, the department responsible for that payment would need to make sure it's included in their ambit. But yes, we, we also check the ambits. Um, yes, it's, it's your minister that's bringing the budget. Yes, no, he's bringing the estimates and the budget bill on behalf of the departments, each, each department. Bill, yes. Yeah, each department informs us what they need included in both the ambit and in the detail of the figures in both of those. But without an ambit, there's no legal payment. Without an ambit, there's no, there's no legal authority to pay because it wouldn't then be included in the voting account. Yes. Uh, just the other quick question I had, going back to the sole authority, what I'm wanting to know in the sole authority and what I'm struggling to still find information on is um, when the reason for relying on sole authority is that legislation hasn't been passed to authorise the expenditure. Why does it not tell us why legislation has not been proceeded with? You know, with 40 million in welfare, but with no explanation as to why that legislation has not progressed. We have 7 million in um, good relations, with no explanation as to why legislation has not progressed. It's just not good enough to say no legislation has been passed. I want to know, certainly, why legislation hasn't been passed. Okay, I think in the instance of the welfare, it was the current legislation lapsed when the, when the, the executive yeah. and the assembly wasn't sitting. Over and a therefore, year ago, or a year ago. Yeah, and then they have been bringing it through and they hope that that to be through for December this year. I can't comment on the other one, but yes, that is something that we can we can include in, in the detail. You'll see when you get our written response, we've provided you with quite a lot of detail in there. Yeah, you and, already have it. Yeah, if you have it, and then happy to take your views on what exactly you would like to see reflected in the document. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much indeed. Uh, thanks very much. Um, uh, thank you. Um, I was wondering, can you tell me, the Department explained why the consolidated fund, the cash facility, was used in 2021, uh, when the executive generally have been in receipt of more money, uh, large sums of money, which was were struggling to spend? I was wondering why that yeah. was. Yeah, that's, sorry. this is where it gets probably very complicated and very technical, unfortunately. The, the funding that Treasury have given us for the COVID response initially, it, it's not cash, it's budget cover. 
and they tell us um, the limit on the budget that we can spend. But the way we actually access the cash is we draw that cash down um, weekly, monthly, daily um, through the Northern Ireland office because it's actually voted in their estimate. And to part of that funding gets drawn down from the Northern Ireland office and goes into the Northern Ireland Consolidated Fund. Departments can only draw cash from the Northern Ireland Consolidated Fund if it is included in a budget bill, and that budget bill has received royal assent. Unfortunately, the timing this year meant that, for example, DOF, who have had the, the largest drawdown, by the time the, the main estimates and the, and the budget number three bill were passed, they were not aware that they were going to extend the LRSS support. Therefore, they didn't include that provision in their main estimates position. Subsequently, it was clear that they needed that support. The budget cover was there and the allocation was made to the department, but they did not have the legislative authority to actually draw the cash from the consolidated fund. And that is why they ran out of cash. They had the budget cover, but they didn't have the ability to access the cash. And it's, we used that contingencies mechanism to give them the cash to spend up to the level that was in their budget. Okay, thanks. Jim. This one. Yep. Not, not clever, Jim. <laughs> um, I don't think anybody even <laughs> believes that for one nanosecond. <laughs> well, after that performance, he's certainly a lot brighter than mine. My question is not going like as searching. Um, first of all, uh, I do think, I, I know that the DFP staff moved in a, in a sphere where £430 million is just, it's just chicken feed. I understand that. But to a mere mortal like me, that's actually quite a lot of large amount of money and I think it, it would have been better had that addition to the budget been actually annotated to indicate what it was. Um, far, be, far from me to ask an awkward question but I think that that is a substantive amount of money. Uh, secondly, um, a totally different issue, the Department of Communities budget. I understand that there's a, a, a recommendation to reduce um, in the, independent serve, the independent advice sector by 1.5 million. Now, this is maybe something that you, you may not be across, but just to say that I would have thought, given what that sector has been through in 2020 and the vast amount of foot, footfall they're going to have with the unwinding of furlough and all of the COVID grants and, and the huge increase in um, universal, present, uh, universal credit claimants, and also the fact there were 8,000 cases behind for social security tribunals. 8,000. I mean, that's just staggering. It, is it not a bit counterproductive to be recommending a cut in that budget for the incoming financial year? Okay. Um, if I can take your, fir your first point um, first, um, $430 million is a substantive amount of money in anybody's books. But, uh, and we're happy to get you more detail of that. But just for clarity, the $430 million is an increase in the provision. That doesn't mean the department will be spending that money. That's the department recognising that liability in its accounts. When the department, in order to spend that money, the department will need to have budget Dell budget cover for that, and more details. The allocation will be included in in the budget, or in a monitoring yeah. round, and more detail will be available there. So, John, from that perspective, four hundred and thirty million is not money out the door at this stage. Yeah. It recognises the department has a liability in that respect. Yes, but just um, just to come back to that, John, you, you just. It's such a substantive amount that even at that level, I think there should have been a wee bit more detail at this stage, because it could yeah. be coming our way at that, at that level. And that, to me, is a huge amount of money, and it's bigger than some department's entire budget. Yeah, it, it is a huge amount of money. We'll certainly get that detail. I think we have to have a balance between 
there's a it's already a very bulky document and if you go through every department's accounts each one of or each department's estimates each one of them will have a lot of uh, large numbers in there and if we were to explain every one the document would probably be about 10 times the size it is now so it is, it is about deciding what um, information we give in terms of the provision the department's accounts will give detail of what that provision is for when they're published but i appreciate that somewhat after after the effect here mm -hmm. um, turning to the independent device sector obviously um that is a matter for the draft budget which is currently out for consultation the executive will then revert to its final budget and there is covid money to be allocated as part of that final budget so what will happen is once that final budget is announced, then the Department of Communities will make decisions on how it lives within that fund, the funding that's been provided within that budget. And it will be for the Department of Communities to, set, to decide which areas they need to reduce and if they do need to reduce them to live within that budget. But it's something that we will pick up in, I would imagine, our consultation responses and that the executive can consider as part of its final budget. Well, that's useful. So you're saying that um, citizens' advice in the independent advice sector is a hook. You could hang the COVID money on that hook, as it were, because presumably enough a lot of their extra work will be directly or indirectly COVID related. Well, that, that's for the Department for Communities to, to make that argument. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it was yourself that said that they're doing a lot of work, COVID related work. So I, I, it's for the Department of Communities to make that argument. But there is COVID money available to be handed out in Thank the you. final budget. Thank you. Joanne, sort of uh, talking about large sums of money, one of the things that, sort of, as you can imagine, being uh, the party that holds the health ministry, looking at the health estimates and the considerable, I think there's a, a down delta between um, cash and um, uh, cash and resource. Is it nearly close about 0.9 of a billion? If my sums are correct, so how and that is a substantial sum. So what, what? How is that? Is that because the department hasn't been able to spend? All the COVID money that it was coming in, or what? What is the what is the explanation to that? I think it's page. If you look at page 131, but sort of the explanation on X1, uh, probably sort of it just it stands out quite starkly. Sorry, it'll take me a while to find that again. Sorry, what page was it? I think it's easiest if we just look at sort of the table one summary of the estimates on uh, on uh, page uh, 11, Roman numeral 11. Look at the Department of Health line. Yeah, sorry, I'm just finding that. I managed to lose it all together. Department of Health. Yeah, and we're talking big chunks. Uh, so it is the change in the provision that we're looking at? Yeah, so it's correct? both in resources and cash, but the, the whole thing added up is close on 0.9 of a billion. Yeah, so that's the change between, um, and Roisin's going to jump in and correct me if I'm wrong, that's the, the increase between their main estimates and this position. So yes, the, the increase would be due to additional allocations of having additional spending to have. And, and just to be clear, you can't actually add the resource and caches together. No, I know, but it's, it's, it's will, just will be the same thing. It's, it's, it's just it's that just we're looking at we're looking at accounting for it. Yeah, we're looking at some significant sort of uh, differences, and that is a, that one really that really sort of stands out. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So their resources have, have been down considerably there. Can you hear me now? 
Yeah. Yes, can you hear me? Yeah. Sorry, I was trying to, um, my microphone wasn't working earlier. The 430 million is the provision for the victims' pensions and it is in the Rambit. So just to Ooh. clarify that. In terms of the, um, the Department sorry, of Health... Sorry, just, just, just to get that 430, it's in the provisions in the what book? It's in the provisions and it's in the Rambit as well. In the Rambit. Okay, so they're, they've yes. they're, they're, they're yeah. expected 430 million and Amy, that's what they're looking at. Yeah. Yep. And then the Department of Health. I'm just looking at the re reduction in the um, resource requirement because at the main estimates, the Department of Health were given um, headroom of 600 million at that time. Right. Um, which would explain, you know, um, the reason for the, the reduction uh, between now and between the mains and now. And they did have that extra funding at that time. So, right. So, basically, that, that's accounted for the headroom that they expected they were going to have, but they didn't need. Yes. Okay. Right. Okay. Thank you for that. Thank you, Russell. Mm. Oh, Paul, go ahead. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, folks. And again, we are into the, the, the yellow pages, the, the, the multiple pages of, of detail and figures and facts and figures. I don't know how you guys do it. Uh, can I ask the question, and it's similar to Jim's question around, uh, and he, he picked out the provisions subheading in the TEO budget pages, but when is it acceptable to use the subheading provisions as opposed to any other more detailed itemised subheading? Um, provisions are, are really an accounting term, so departments would use that when they're recognising that they have a liability, but they're not actually paying out any cash in the year. So, so that's in case something goes wrong, say in a court, or 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 for some sort of other payout or yes. uh, burden or liability yes. on pensions. Um, yes, but they, they, they have to be able to, to um, estimate the amount of funding and there, there has to be a certain degree of certainty around, around it, but there's also uncertainty around the actual timing and amount, which means they can't accrue the actual cost, but they do recognise that they have a liability, albeit slightly uncertain. So if I take you to, uh, again, I don't need you to flick through if, it's, uh, if it is a problematic to you, but the Department of Economy on page 45 uh, has provisions. Uh, with a large increase, um, would that be in case the RHA court case was to be lost by a department? I'm going to turn to Roshin again, he has more of the detail underpinning all the numbers than I do. Sorry, could you just repeat that again? So, so under, under, under the, yeah. the Department of the Economy, uh, Part 2 changes, proposed changes, and again it's under provisions. Uh, and it's an increase, or a change, sorry, but it is an increase of 139, 139 million. Do, do we know exactly what that's accounting for? If it is, so if, if it is burdens or liabilities, that could well be the forthcoming challenge in the courts with regards to RHA. Would that be correct? Am I in the right line? Yes, it, it, that is the provisions line, yes. So, so that would be for that, what that would be, could well be for? Could be the right oh, is that not the voucher scheme? 40 million, is it? Voucher, it could be the voucher scheme. Yeah, 140 million. Right 140 million. Yes. 
Yeah, I, I, I think actually you're right. We can confirm that, but I think you're right. I think that is the voucher scheme. So, so the provisions is the 139 million voucher scheme. So, so where then would be? And we know it's forthcoming. I have a lot of constituents who are, are keeping an eye on the challenge with regards to RHA. Where would that be within the Department of Economy's budget line? Um, that, that would be a matter for the Department for Economy. Um, they may feel that, that's, that there's enough uncertainty around it that they don't need to take a provision for it yet. As I said, there needs to be a degree of certainty around uh, payments before you take a provision for it. I might just interject there, if that's okay. Um, and, um, if, if you actually compare those two, um, Paul, the, the scheme um, in terms of the um, the high street voucher scheme, where there's been an announcement, um, you know, there's some idea of what the quantum would be, um, and also about the timing. As Joanne said, there's there's the certainty there um, that the department has to sort of recognise that as a liability, um, and you know, the difference between um, the present and the the change in provision um, is kind of shown that they're now expecting that to be all next year because of the restrictions, and they won't be able to, if you like, um, put any of that money out this year. Um, the the other example that you've, you've given there, which is the RHI one, which you're interested in, because it's subject to ongoing consultation at the moment, that leaves um, an uncertainty around which of the options. And um, obviously, whenever you go into a consultation like that, there's the possibility that um, you know any of the options could be chosen. But as well as that, that actually even the options themselves might be refined um, in light of feedback from the consultees. So um, it, when you compare those two in terms of the certainty, you know, there's the ministerial announcement for the high street voucher scheme. Now, I'm not an, an expert or an accountant, but there's more certainty around that. Um, yes. Whereas with the consultation, it's, you know, their consultations have to be open-ended. You have to be able to, um, you know, come to um, a, a refinement of, of a position or, um, if you like, it has to be a meaningful exercise. So it couldn't, they couldn't have determined um, at this stage how much it was going to cost um, in advance of consultation. Although in their consultation they do have a preferred option. Yes, uh, and I think that that is normal enough to have a preferred option. Some of them are completely open, some consultations are completely open, but it's normal enough to have a preferred option. And at that stage you're inviting people to, uh, if you like, you're inviting people to give you contrary evidence and contrary views. Um, and if you think back to the first consultation on the RHI where they um, you know, they, they had a um, a preferred option in terms of the tariff, and then that was increased um, back back in the original. I'm not using that to say that that was good practice um, or that that was the best outcome, but it's an example of how um, your preferred option changes yes. uh, potentially as, as, as a result of feedback. And, and that would be, is it suitable and acceptable that that would be within your provisions subheading and not a distinct heading on its own? As Joanne said, um, that is probably why it's not in the provisions, and um, because there is that level of uncertainty around, uh, you know, it's an open, it's a consultation around the future of the scheme, and one of the options is that the scheme carries on, um, and another one of the options is that it closes. That, you know, that level of uncertainty is so big, so stark, and um, that you know you, you have very different costs in those two scenarios for ne for next year, say. You know, the cost next year is very very different if the scheme is ongoing or if it's closed in the compensation aspect. Okay. All of the, all of those provisions, charity. When the provisions initially made, the provision will be in the provisions line because it is under the um, Amy section, which is where the provision will be recorded initially. So it will be sitting there as opposed to sitting in one of the um, other function lines. 
and that 140,000 is for the high street voucher scheme, just to confirm that. Right, okay, because in, in page 48, in your Amy uh, chart, there is the there is a three, 33 million for the renewable heat incentive scheme. So that's where I need to yes, look right. for that. Yeah, you're right. That'll be the minimum. Yeah. Right, okay. So that, that's where it sits. Uh, so it's nowhere near that provision subheading then? Oops. Yeah, the actual payment cycle sit in that Amy line. Yes, you know, okay. Yes, whereas the provision is a, a, a liability basically. And, and so that... So, so that thirty-three, that thirty-three million, thirty-three and a half million, uh, for, for from Amy, is 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 what they forecast for the scheme to run through for a following year, if the scheme is up and running. That does not take into consideration, though, any court challenges or any changes to the scheme. No, what they're planning, sir, John. Planning to spend on the scheme with the year that's now coming to an end. Yes, I, th yes. I think that's actually. I think that's actually both schemes as well in there. I think the domestic and non-domestic schemes might both be in the same um, thirty-three million. I'm not sure what the breakdown is between the two, but the vast majority of it is is obviously the the non-domestic scheme. Okay, and another question then, completely unrelated to the first, on page one eight five, uh, the DOJ lines, pages. Uh, again, there's a, um, a big change in the Legal Services Agency Northern Ireland. 50% uh, increase, in fact. Uh, do we know what that's for? Is it Paul? Sorry, page 185, uh, yeah. uh, Department of Justice, yeah. and yeah. again, it's part two, changes proposed, and it's the Legal Services uh, Agency Northern Ireland, A14. Oh, A14. Apologies, I was looking at A8. Uh, yeah, again, there's... Double. So what's the difference there between A8 and A14? A8 is the Dell side of the Legal Services Agency, and then A14, we will have um, Amy um, cover there as well. I'm not sure what the 123 million uh, is for. We can check, but there is the Dell and Amy or the two. Just the split of the expenditure. Yeah, it just seems, again, a big, big difference of increase there. Uh, for that A14. Strange way of putting it then twice. Well, well one's, we, we, we know why one's Dell and one's Amy. That's the reason why it's factored yeah. in twice. Uh, but I just don't know why such an increase, over nearly 50% of an increase there from its net provision. A few of them are in card. Yeah. Again, that's something that I'll maybe bring up at the Justice Committee tomorrow. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, thank you. That's me, Don. Okay, thanks very much. Jim, Jim Oster, in for a short one, please. I just wanted to come back to the provisions for the victim's pension. Now that we know that the $430 million is for that, it then appears in the Amy expenditure. Does that mean that it's agreed by Treasury before it can go into the Amy expenditure? 
It's in, in, in the image purely because it's provision and not the actual payment out. All provisions or the majority of provisions score in the EMI because they don't represent cash payments. They're just the department recognising that it has a future liability. So all provisions or almost all provisions will be in EMI. It doesn't mean that the actual payments out will score in EMI. They will be a Dell cost unless the Treasury agrees otherwise, which is unlikely. So even though it appears uh, scored at the moment seems to be scored as an EMA. It doesn't necessarily mean it will be an EMA. The provision, the provision is an EMA yeah. because the provision is simply the department recognising that it has a future liability. So it recognises that it will have to make payments to victims, but at this point it's uncertain as to the timing or amount, so they're not accruing the cost. They're, they're basically saying we have a liability, we know we will have to pay this out in the future. What will happen is when they make that payment out, the cost will score in Dale, and then um, the accounting treatment and the budgeting treatment would be that that Amy figure that is there will then come down, so there'll be a plus minus between Dell and Amy when the actual payment occurs. But, but the figure's $430 million. The government actually said the top line here, the absolute worst case scenario, is $1.2 billion. So why is a third of a 30-year programme in one year? In the yeah. Year? You, you recognise your total liability, not just the, the incoming year. And at the point where that the estimates were prepared, that was probably their best estimate. Um, at the minute, 1.2 would be the top of the range. There's a lower, there's a mid and a lower range figure as well. So yes, the, the executive office may want to review on the back of that governor actually report whether they need to change that provision. Obviously, if the provision they put through in their accounts is greater than the amount that is voted now, then they will have an excess vote and that will have to come back to the assembly. Okay. Okay, thank you. Okay, Jim. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, do you want to... Sorry. Sorry. No, it's just for something later. Yeah, we probably would probably will do we'll do that afterwards. Stuff. Sorry. Joanne, Jonathan Rushing, thank you very much indeed as usual. Thank for your uh, thank you for your evidence. Are we hearing from you next week? No, we we've got a week off. Promise. We've got a week off, promise. Come on. This is so much. Imagine that. Imagine that. Okay. Everybody, keep safe. Good to talk to you again. Okay, thanks very much indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers. Can we take the officials off spotlight, please? Uh members, I think I would quite like to write to the TEO to have a uh look at the um actuaries government actuaries report. Um and not for of any particular other reason, but the fact that um, the quantum, I'm getting sort of a bit lost in figures here. I think uh, two weeks ago, we heard the figure of 28 million. Now we've heard 430 million. Now we've heard 1.2 billion. Now we've heard 600 million. And obviously the actuaries report has some detail in it that might be useful because that way we could at least have a good view of what uh, sort of the quantum is and what it's being compared to. Uh, I must admit, I'm I'm quite easily confused about most things, but right now, I'm not really sure where we are in this. Apart from the fact that they've at least recognised we need to have a provision of 430 million. So, if we're agreed, I would like to write to the TEO for a copy of the uh, for them to uh, give us a copy of that report. We agreed. 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 Just on that, chair. Just today. So the the quotes today is that the finance minister reckons that the. It could amount to 1.2 billion, but they, the finance minister reckons in the first year it could be anything between 70 million and 145 million. Uh, the Secretary of State is claiming that it will cost 28 million. So, the massive issues here with regards to what 
the scheme will actually cost. And yet, and yet, the, pen, the victims haven't received one bean. And that's, I mean, that, that is the thing. We are sitting here arguing about condoms and where it's coming from. We've made provisions, yet the victims haven't received a single yeah. penny. And I think, I, think that's, I think that's noted. Uh, second note, um, can we also write to the Department of Finance reference headroom reconciliation? just seems quite strange, the accounting process. Uh, you know, a billion pounds here, a billion pounds there in headroom. It just seems to be quite a lot of um, headroom and reconciliation, if we're content to do that as well. And the final note about legal services agency. Yes, I, I find that quite. I must admit, I find that quite confused. I understand where they've done it, but why would you? You look at other departments and how it's done. And one of the things we've been asking for time and again is to get the information presented to us in the same format by the department in the same way. And I find that, uh, I mean, that was, that was quite confusing because uh, I always refer to the uh, excellence of my deputy, but I was looking at a different line than he was, <laughs> and I couldn't work out where he was getting the figures from yeah. until I looked up and down. So could we ask, uh, just to have a get a bit more detail on that? Um, thank you very much. It would indeed. be actually interesting, and we don't have the time today uh, while we're on live, but it would be actually interesting to look through every single department and see if they've double-lined any other aspect of their budget between Amy and Dell, because I don't see anywhere where there is that double, I'm not saying it's double accounting, I'm, I'm, I'm saying it's double itemised. I mean, that's a bit that's confused me, because I've scanned a few of the, the other departments and I'm not seeing it, so that's what's confusing me slightly. And again, we, just, we still don't know why the increase, but I'll try and find that out tomorrow. The you're you're in Justice, are you? Yeah, right, Justice okay. Committee tomorrow, I'll try and find that out, but then of course we can always ask in the debates. Uh, okay. Next week. Okay, if we're content, we can move on to correspondence. Mr. Uh, oh, Chairman, Hutt News, Arlene Foster's 500 to 1 on against to be the next Celtic manager. It's <laughs> 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 so the latest, the latest oh, this is just some time. All right, sorry. Authority and things. Uh, where are we? Oh, sorry. Um, the Minister asked for the. Com um, where are we? We're just there. All oh, right, sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry. It's been a long day already. Uh, members sought an oral briefing on the use of sole authority of the Budget Act for spending. Given the evidence session the committee has just undertaken, is the committee content that a further oral evidence session is not required? Jim, team. Yeah. Great. Okay. Thank you. Sorry about that. And the committee agreed last week that I should write to the Speaker in line with Standing Order 42.2 to provide the necessary confirmation for accelerated passage for the Budget Bill, which we agreed to do. The Minister has also sought the Committee's support for the suspension of standing orders in order to allow for the passage of the Bill in less than 10 days. Um, my view is this, the Minister is perfectly, this is a matter for the Minister or the Speaker. Um, I don't think whether we decide on that is uh, particularly appropriate or not. And I think the Minister is perfectly entitled to ask the Speaker to, uh, uh, to allow the passage of the Bill in 10 days. So if we're content, we leave it at that. Great. Moving on to correspondence, uh, same members' attention is drawn. To, sorry, members' attention is drawn to the index of correspondence on page 728. Uh, first of all, the uh, Department of Finance monitoring around transaction types. Members are asked to note a response from the committee at page 733 regarding monitoring around transaction types that do not require details to be specified to the department. Are we agreed? Agreed. Agreed. Department of Finance, further allocations for the Department of Education. 
Members' attention is drawn to the Department's response on page 736 regarding further allocations to the Department of Education to support a teacher's pay deal. The Department has not answered the Committee's question as to whether the allocation meets Treasury rules. Do we have any comments? Bearing in mind this is moving money forward, and I don't want us to get in the position that we're agreeing to monies that is going forward for teachers' pay, uh, teachers pay rises, which is, uh, as we all agree, is particularly important. But we need to understand that it actually meets the Treasury's rules. Are we content to write to the Department of Finance just seeking confirmation the allocation is within Treasury rules, so that we're not caught out later on? Agreed. Uh, Minister of Finance, UK Shared Prosperity Fund. Uh, members asked to note the response at page 739 sent to the Committee for Communities regarding future funding arrangements and the UK Shared Prosperity Fund. This includes a document setting out the Executive's agreed priorities in the UK Shared Prosperity Fund. Are we agreed? Agreed. Okay. Public sector reform. Note the response on page 751 to the Committee regarding public sector reform and the OECD carrying out a further review. The Minister disagrees at the Committee's suggestion owing to costs and the emergence of new factors, including NDNA. Uh, is the Committee content to forward the response to OECD for its information? I think we should. Yeah. Great. Uh, Department of Finance Draft Programme for Government. Uh, members are asked to consider a response at page 755 regarding the Department's role in supporting the outcomes of the draft PFG. The Department indicates that its role in supporting transformation is limited to consultancy and benchmarking and has some direct responsibility regarding the built environment, which I understand, but economic growth and uh, digital infrastructure. I don't quite understand why the Department is particularly involved in economic growth and digital infrastructure. Uh, if you don't mind, I would think we should write to the Department just to seek clarity on digital infrastructure and economic growth within this particular piece. I get the piece about consultancy, I get the piece about benchmarking, but I think for the committee, just to understand how they understand their uh, involvement in economic growth and digital infrastructure, I think would be quite useful, just for our information. We agreed? Mm -hmm. uh, move on to Department of Finance and Economy support for driving schools. Uh, Department are asked to consider responses page 758 regarding support for driving skills. The Department for Economy indicates this sits with the Department of Finance. The Department of Finance advises that support was targeted at businesses with rateable premises and that driving instructors could either be furloughed or, if self-employed, it could apply to the COVID restrictions business support scheme in their own right. The Department for Economy clarifies that the overarching business in question could not apply to CRBSS Part A. Uh, this, is a, this is a bit of a sorry affair, but uh, the committee has already written to both ministers encouraging them to fill in the gaps in respect of business support schemes for under-supported sectors. Is the committee content to forward the responses to the ABBA driving school for information? Are we agreed? Agreed. 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 Uh, Department of Finance, Art 21, Green Growth, uh, with the, my declaration of interest already made. Members are asked to note the Department's response on page 764 sent to ARC 21 regarding Green Gove, which highlights a number of relative and relevant initiatives. Are we agreed to note? Agreed. Yeah. Department of Finance moving Procurement Board update. Members are asked to note a response from the Department on page 768 providing an update on the Procurement Board. The Procurement Board's work programme includes a workshop on social value and a review of extant guidance. The Department is to brief on related progress in March. Sarah, we agreed to have that information. Agreed. 
Minister of Finance, Reform and Investment Initiative. Members are asked to note a response at page 771 to committee queries regarding treatment of interest in RRI. I think, Paul, this was of particular interest of yours. The Minister advises this is held centrally and indicates that unspent resources from the 2021 financial year cannot be used to meet future interest and or principal repayment costs associated with borrowing included under RRI. The Committee has already written seeking further information on PPI and PFI payments to the Department. Are we agreed? Agreed. Yeah, just to thank the, the Department for uh, furnishing that information, and you can see very clearly there uh, the PPI uh, projects throughout the years and how long they've got to go. Some of them thirty years. Some of them thirty years, and you know that in itself is a pretty big burden. You know, we all talk about borrowing money and and and, and borrowing is quite cheap at the minute, and we all want growth. But there 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 leaves that burden on departments, uh, which has to be furnished every year, it has to be paid back every year, uh, which brings an inflexibility with it with regards to budgets and probably infrastructure is one of the ones I think when I read it that you know was hurt the most on that issue. On some cases that may be on road networks that we all enjoy and every department will avail of. Uh, so it's just something to bear in mind when we do talk about borrowing. Okay, thanks very much, Paul. Uh, next item uh, connect to Regional hubs. Members are asked to consider a copy of a written ministerial statement at page 775 regarding Connect to Regional Hubs. Members are reminded that the committee has already written seeking clarity of the relevant costs for 2122. Is the uh, committee content to seek an oral briefing from the Department on the related reform of property management programme? Are we agreed? Agreed. And there's an item I'll bring up in the forward work programme, reference that later on as we go on. Uh, Minister for Economy, Presbyterian Mutual Society. Members are asked to consider a response at page 779 for the Minister for Economy regarding amounts included in the January monitoring relating to the Presbyterian Mutual Society. The response does not address the issues raised by savers in respect of reported warnings from insolvency practitioner. Is, therefore, is the committee therefore content to forward this response to the Committee for the Economy and to write to the Department of Finance to ask it to advise in respect of the financial risk of any associated with the insolvency of the Presbyterian Mutual Society? I raised this, and I think Jim also mentioned it last uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, I'm, I'm still confused, and I think we might need a paper from the Department explaining exactly where we stand. The issue that I raised wasn't so much the risk of insolvency, but a saver who actually claimed that he hadn't received Save his money. entire remuneration from uh, the refund from the um, from the Presbyterian Mutual. The other issue is that I'm one of the few well, few MLAs that was around at the time when the executive agreed to lend or to take out a loan of 200 million to pay off the debts of the Presbyterian Mutual Society. Mm. I understand had we actually not done that and sat on the assets would now be in a profit, but of course that's great with hindsight. So what I'm really looking for is a current update on where we stand um, with the whole figure. Now, funny enough, as we know, we had this uh, mentioned today in, in the budget yeah. of a £17 million coming in in December 2020 as part, I presume, of the repayment of that £200 million, which is obviously really good news. And what was interesting about that, that was anticipated. So that tells me that the Department of Finance has got a, a, um, a projected income from the Presbyterian Mutual, which presumably will pay off the £200 million. I think, did we not get that 
200 million centrally from Westminster. So do we have to pay that back, or have we paid it back? So again, compared to the numbers that Joanne was throwing in there, 430 million, this is peanuts. But it would be interesting to see where we stand on that. Uh, look, just through the uh, sort of members of the committee, I thought I understood where we were with the Presbyterian Mutual Society, but this has raised more questions. And, and I think I would, um, I think we should be writing to both the Committee for the Economy and to write to the Department of Finance to ask the advice in respect of any financial risk which is still associated with the insolvency of the Presbyterian Mutual Society. I, it, it just there's been too many questions that are beginning to be raised, and I think the responses we've had, I think it's appropriate that we do ask that question, just in case there is, as you quite rightly say, there is a continued liability, if we're content. Chair. Sorry, Jim. Yeah, it is a very confusing picture, but some material that I've read recently would suggest that the problem is that the money that was loaned by the department, the $175 million, which came with in quite generous interest rates attached to its repayment, that that is, they are a priority creditor over some of the original PMS investors. Mm. And there now isn't enough money from some things I've read to pay anyone other than the department, which is what I think is causing a lot of the angst with people who believe that the various measures put in place was guaranteeing their position are now finding it isn't so. So I think we do need absolute clarity. That's probably more from the Department of the Economy as to what the outworking is of this for ordinary investors or, or a particular class of investor uh, within PMS. Okay, we're content well right on, on, that, on that vein. Uh, moving on, Committee for Community Support for Individuals Classified as CEV. Members are asked to consider a copy of letter at page 782 to the Minister of Finance from the Committee for Communities regarding financial support for people with clinically extremely vulnerable category. Is the Committee content to write Shield Us NI and seek clarity on the number of people that believes are affected by this? Are we agreed? Yep. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, Audit Committee Draft Budget 2021-22 Letters. Members will note letters at pages 785 to 789 from the Audit Committee to the Minister for Finance regarding the Draft Budget 2021-22 uh, and relevant bodies, public sector pay progression and the use of the enterprise shared services. Are we content to note? Note. Committee for the Executive Office uh, Co-Commissioning of Experts in Northern Ireland Protocol. Members are asked to consider at page 795 a response to the Committee for Finance's suggestion to commission expert opinion to advise on matters arising from the Ireland-Northern Ireland Protocol. TO Committee suggests that both committees agree the selection of experts. I think we agree to that. Is the Committee content that the clerk lays with the Assembly research and report back to the Committee with a view to expert oral evidence being provided from May 2021, once we know what's happening? Are we agreed? Great. Uh, EU Affairs Manager Structures of Intergovernmental Relations and EU Exit. Members are asked to consider information on EU Exit Structures from the EU Affairs Manager on uh, page 797. Uh, I would quite like to, I think we should receive an oral briefing from uh, the EU Affairs Manager uh, so that we can get a bit more detail on this as it comes forward. Are we agreed? Great. Committee for Justice Damages Return on Investment Bill. Members are asked to note a copy of the letter from the Department of Justice at page 820 sent to the Minister of Finance regarding the Damages Return on Investment Bill 
The committee has previously sought the government's actuary department estimates of relevant costs. Is this agreed? Agreed. Uh, Chair, thank you, yeah, Mr. Bond. No. Uh, Chair, um, I beg your pardon. The um, the order of the items in the meeting pack is incorrect. This is entirely the the uh, clerk's fault. So we will come to the infrastructure one. I promised the members. So we're we're coming to it directly. The chair's brief is right. Uh, the pack is wrong. Clerk's fault. Bear with us. Well spotted, Mr. Q. Glad you're reading your pack. Well done. <laughs> Do you think I was going to try and sneak something past you? I wouldn't want you marking my homework. <laughs> uh, Public Accounts Committee Primacy. Members are asked to note on page 822 details of the report of the Northern Ireland Audit Office over which the Public Accounts Committee has primacy. It is understood that the PSC is currently considering the Audit Office report on the capability and capacity of the NICS, which is obviously something of interest to us. It is also understood that PIC will consider the NIO uh, strategic review of the budget process to be published in March later this year. And again, that is something that is of interest to us. The committee may have to, to defer work on the development of a memorandum of understanding with the department until the PIC has concluded its work on the latter. The committee may also have to defer public consultation on RHI matters subject to the PIC's review of an NIAO report to be published in March. I think we've probably got enough on our plate at the moment, so I think I'll be sort of. I think we're are we can happy to note. Note. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, uh, committee for infrastructure money's returned in the monitoring round. Members are asked to consider a request. It's uh, page seven hundred ninety six from the committee of infrastructure seeking information which money's returned by the department in the monitoring round. Are we content to forward to the department for a response to committee for infrastructure? Are we agreed? Alicia, do you want to say something particular about that? No, no. Well, in fact, just you, I thought you missed. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought you, I thought you wanted to talk about potholes or something. Like that. Was it giving you an no, opportunity? Office of the Speaker issues with Starleaf. Members are asked to note a response on page eight hundred twenty-six from the Office of the Speaker regarding issues with Starleaf. Is the committee content to note? Note. Uh, Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists 2021 Census Issue. Members are asked to consider correspondence from the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists at page 830 regarding the decision to remove communication difficulties as an answer to one of the census questions. Is the committee content to forward to the department for comment and to seek an updated oral briefing from NISRA on the census after Easter? Are we agreed? Agreed. Agreed. Chair, sorry. Go ahead. Um, I wrote to the department about that and have a response. So, I, look, I, I work away and write to them, but I'm just afraid if it's duplicating work. All right. I can form, you know, it's up to you. Good. Would you be happy to share your response with us? Yes, of course. Yeah, I'll send it all. Do you want me to send it to all committee members? Yeah, yes, please. please. That, thank you very much indeed, Gemma. That's excellent work. No thank you. No uh, moving I'm on. Sure any, any briefing after Easter, the census would be over. Yeah, but the census has already been printed, so it's. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Um, Department of Finance, SEUB annual report and accounts. Uh, members are asked to consider a copy of the special EU programmes body annual reports and accounts at page 834. Uh, the report indicates that SEUB's internal audit identified a number of significant issues which they considered could potentially put at risk. 
any expenditure claimed under unit cost simplified cost options. SEUB therefore put £2.1 million under assessment in the EU annual financial statement, which was submitted in February 2020. SEUB also agreed to review and agree all unit cost SCO methodologies with the Audit Authority by the end of May 2020. In monetary terms, some uh, €23.5 million Euros of interreg VA claims were held until a satisfactory resolution of the SCO review. The positive conclusion of the first two SEOs, SEUB reports that €11.97 million Euros of that value have been included as an interim payment application to the Commission. Um, has anybody got an idea what a simplified cost options is? Um, sir, it's all well and good talking about that, but uh, when I see anything in an internal audit report and they consider something that says potentially it risks on expenditure claimed under something that I can't really understand, I would like some clarification on that, just so that I'm aware of what I've been asked to sign off on and what I've been asked to note on. If we're content, I'd like to write to the SEUB seeking an update in the review of SCOs uh, with a detailed outline of what they actually are and what they've been used for, why they were at risk, and the payment of interreg VA claims. Uh, are we agreed on that? Agreed. Great. Thank you very much indeed. A composite request. Uh, the members are asked to consider the composite request at page 918. Is the committee content with the composite request as an accurate record of the committee's information request? And say, are we agreed? Agreed. agreed. Okay. Uh, forward work programme, draft work programme is uh, page 930. Uh, the Construction Employers the Federation will now provide evidence on the public procurement common framework uh, on the 3rd of March. The Social Prize Enterprise NI providing evidence on the same subject on the 10th of March. Are we agreed to that? Agreed. Agreed. Uh, are members content to receive an oral brief from the Department next week on an SL1 on energy performance certificates? The associated statutory rule is to be subject to affirmative resolution that may come to plenary before Easter. Uh, I think it would. Uh, one of the things that previously, uh, when we were looking at fire safety regulations and the rest of it, the more we learned uh, about sort of the, re the remit of this committee and some of the areas we're in it as well, I would quite like to have an oral uh, briefing on this just to get an understanding, because I understand energy performance certificates are going to have a considerable impact on both so how we deal with climate change, but also on costs and building as well. So I think it'd be useful if we had an oral brief on that. Are we agreed? Agreed. agreed. Yep. Uh, the clerk advises that it's likely the committee will be considering the committee stages of bill in the autumn, including the financial reporting departments and public bodies bill, Northern Ireland 2021, possibly the defamation bill 2021, which is a private members bill. And the committee will also be considering the budget number two bill in late May, which leaves some gaps in the forward work programme. I was talking with uh, Peter earlier on today, and obviously we have already heard from the minister that his intention is that the fiscal council will be on a statutory basis. So I think, and he said he would be um, going forward with the committee to make sure the fiscal council is put on a firm as independent basis as possible as we go forward. So I think one of the things we would be encouraging is to get it put on the statute before the end of this mandate. And I think that's one of the things we'll be encouraging the, um, obviously, I think the Fiscal Council and the Fiscal Commission issue has gone before the executive. 
and I cannot say, but I believe it's probably been agreed. So therefore, in that case, we should be encouraging the minister, in conjunction with us, to be able to put together uh, this on a statute basis and do it uh, as quickly as we can, particularly if we've got a space for that. Um, the committee, sorry, sorry, the committee will also be considering the budget. Did that. This will be addressed by taking agreed briefings. Also, we're doing taking agreed briefings on the census, the reform of property management, and expert advice on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Are members content to seek oral briefings from the department on its business plan and for the clerk to contact stakeholders on COVID recovery and business rates with reform for a, a, a view on securing oral briefings? Great. Additionally, our members are content for the clerk to contact stakeholders seeking oral briefings on fiscal governance matters, including options for an independent fiscal council and the fiscal commission. Great. And options for the devolution of tax varying powers and other revenue generation and the fiscal balance. I think that would be quite Great. important to get evidence of that. Yes. Uh, one of the things I sort of uh, apologies uh, to other members of the committee, but uh, when I came in earlier on, this, uh, right at the beginning, I was having a conversation with Lisa about. Uh, Hopefully, we'll be uh, in after Easter. We should be in a position where we'll be able to be open up more. And one of the things that the committee has always expressed an uh, interest in is for us to go and, if necessary, take evidence uh, elsewhere within Northern Ireland. And one of the issues we have, indeed, is the question of the sort of the business hubs that the minister was referring to. And I think there might be an opportunity to combine that with some investigation into issues to do with businesses and sort of how LPS has been able to support those and look at that, and maybe also take some uh, evidence on how sort of um, we can be looking at sort of the importance of other issues, particularly things around about the New Deal and the rest of it, which is a rather long-winded way of saying is that when COVID uh, conditions permit, I think I would quite like to uh, take ourselves uh, out to the West and with Melissa or Gemma or um, their indulgence, if they could suggest a potential venue that we could look to, go, we could look to go to. And I think it's important that other people get to see the work of the committee in as wide a place as possible. If we are content, thank you. Yeah. And uh, to members, uh, do we have any other further? Oh, sorry. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, members are uh, also um, members are also content for Clark to cont uh, contact stakeholders on additionally the Northern Ireland uh, Human Rights Commission and Equality Commission to seek a briefing on transgender legislation. I think that is likely to come our direction. Great. Wonderful. And are we content with the forward work program? Agreed. Great. Is yeah. there any other business? So on that forward work, work programme, with the announcement yesterday of that city deal for Derry London, Derry, I mean, is, is there room there for a briefing to the Finance Committee for on that? I think Chairperson, I'll uh, speak to my colleague to in Committee yeah. in, in Economy and uh, right. see what they're doing. I'll find out what they're right. about that. That's okay. That's okay. okay. Sorry, uh, by the way, um, uh, under, could you? I need to seek the committee's agreement to write to the House of Lords EU Affairs Select Committee. Yeah, offering my apologies as the scheduled meeting clashed with the debate on the protocol matters yesterday. If you're content to do that, and I'm more than content to talk to them separately or offline, and just say that we can do that as well. Okay. Uh, be a busy week next week. Uh, budgets. I think we'll, we'll all see an awful lot of ourselves in the uh, assembly where we are to do as well. Sure. Yep. Well, 
Did we did we write our agreement going back to the travel about the travel agents or again does that sit with the economy? Sorry, members. I think I'm going to commit a crime here. Sorry, um, somebody keeps texting me. Sorry. Yes, um, the chairperson wrote. Um, asked particularly about uh, the independent travel sector, which I think Mr. Free might have mentioned a couple of weeks ago. Yes. Also wrote to both ministers and saying, in general as well, are you bringing forward schemes in order to address uh, those uh, forgotten sectors or under-supported sectors? And they've come back, but I don't think they will maybe have given the answer that uh, the member wants. So I think that's probably still an outstanding issue. Okay, can we move it on anyway? Can we? Well, then, no. Again, the, the economy. The budget, no, the budget debate, I think, is an opportunity yeah. as members yeah, frequently yeah, use to, right. to, uh, to bring these things to the floor. Thank yeah. you. I'm only a... Hi, Chair. Yep. Chair, you can see you. I'm going to put a suggestion about the Dairy City and Stabandistic Council area. That city deal was awarded to you. And, uh, what did you decide on that? Was Mr. Catney actually asking for a meeting or what? No, I think he, he wanted he wanted a briefing on the implications of it. Yeah. And I think, sorry, Pat, sorry, I was talking over here, but I think that's well, what that's you want right, a briefing on the implications of it. Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking that you had already said our police were going to move out. And I thought maybe if we did move out, that would be you know, a good topic as well to bring maybe to the Maiden City when we were there, but also to get a briefing on it and be that on the topic of that day. I think Melissa wants us to go to Castle Dergo. Yeah, I'm just making the point that, uh, that uh, the hubs not there are, in fact, addressing issues in the more rural-type areas and that as well too, rather than just in the cities itself. But it's the city and demand just the council area. And too often the people end up just focusing, say, entirely, we'll say, on the city itself. And, uh, and I was thinking that's a mistake as well too, and that uh, one should do is make sure they embrace the whole sort of district, and it is a district. We'll be guided by you and Gemma. Yeah. Yeah, that's grand. Thank you. Okay. Don't you ban the long tail go anywhere, Melissa. Date and time of next uh, meeting uh, in here at 1400, please, uh, next Wednesday. Uh, thank you very much indeed. The meeting is hereby adjourned. Thank you, Chair. Cheers, everybody. Be safe. That chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed.